Welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hey, Legit Lady listeners, this is your host, Julie Fetterman, and welcome to the podcast where we feature impressive women to inspire the world. And for those of you tuning in and have something to say or something to share with us, feel free to hit us on social media or send us an email at legitladypodcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear any of your feedback, thoughts, or if you have a legit lady in your life that you think we should feature. Well, I want to take a moment to wish everyone a very happy Pride Month. I know we're right near the end of Pride, but Pride is one of my favorite times of year because it really lets you uh, be very open about loving who you love, being as you are. And it's also a really fun time to party with a few hundred thousand of your nearest and dearest friends and allies. And for those of you who might not know, this year's Pride is actually the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And the Stonewall Riots, I'm not going to go into the full history lesson here, but it was a very important piece in the modern gay rights movement. And it's actually where brave people would march in the streets of New York to the Stonewall Inn, which was a bar that was typically targeted and raided by the police since it was typically frequented by people who identified as homosexual. And in the 1960s, as you can imagine, (laughs) most people who were gay or lesbian were actually outlawed and living in the shadows because it was not okay to be that way at that time. And so that act of defiance and their openness and bravery to march is a very important piece of why pride is such an important piece that we honor every single year. And I don't think it's something that we should forget about, uh, especially amidst a lot of the corporations that tend to affiliate themselves with pride. I actually saw uh, a couple of interesting posts in my social media feed recently about companies who try to benefit from pride and, you know, putting out rainbow things for people to buy or just for them to look quote unquote, look nice in the media, but they don't actually support gay rights and equal rights in either their philosophy or their products and services. So I encourage you to do a little bit of research, especially if you see companies that uh, maybe pay for nice floats or have nice rainbow products for Pride Month, but might not actually be super supportive of uh, LGBTQIA rights and freedoms. So with that, (laughs) quick, quick call out here, uh, thinking about our wonderful listeners who are supporting us in the podcast. Really appreciate you uh, going out of your way to share the podcast with people in your life. It really helps listeners who are looking to find the podcast identify where we are. And a really great way to support us for free is to leave us a review on stitcher.com. You can just search for Legit Lady Podcast. And if you have iTunes,
iTunes, you can do something very similar. Just open up iTunes and leave us a rating and preferably a sentence or two of a wonderful review. It doesn't have to be super fancy, but I love taking a moment to read reviews that I receive online, which is fantastic. And that's something I'm going to do right now. And this week, I'm going to head on over to Stitcher. And we have someone who says, great podcast. Uh, It's an amazing podcast. And the value I get is hearing from diverse perspectives from women of various races who have different career occupations. Thank you. Thank you so much for that review. I really appreciate it. I mean, this has been a wonderful learning journey for me to you know, selfishly here, learn so much about different careers, different jobs and roles that I would never have thought I wanted or needed to learn more about. And as you'll see more of these stories unfold, since we have done a whole bunch of interviews and we're just trickling them out one by one that have completely surprised me. So some of the interviews that I I thought would go in a particular way with a particular narrative completely leave me gobsmacked in a very wonderful way. So I'm always looking forward to sharing the next interview with you. And if you're looking for another way to support the podcast and you do have a few dollars that you wouldn't mind spending towards supporting the Legit Lady podcast, feel free to take me out for an online coffee or drink or pat on the back and help us keep the podcast running by going to Kofi.com. So that's ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash legit lady podcast. And that's a really great online tip jar area where you can take me out for a virtual coffee. And that's, I think, maybe $3 Canadian a pop. So an absolute deal if you're one of our listeners from the States or across the pond. And we'd really, really appreciate your support to keep the podcast going since everything that we do with the podcast uh, very often comes out of our pocket directly. So back when I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was sort of virtually introduced to this woman. And the reason why is she has several years of experience in the advertising agency and marketing strategy world. And I always joke growing up that if Don Draper's job, like in Mad Men, if you guys watch that show, was still kind of a a real job, and maybe it is, (laughs) I'd be really, really good at it and something I would love to do, aside from drinking the whiskey. But this CEO and founder happens to be leading the helm of a company called Gravity Partners Limited. And this company's worked with very tiny clients like Coca-Cola, <laughs> Sobeys, and Jameson Whiskey, just to name a few. So please give a very warm welcome to the one and only Lee Himmel. Excited to welcome you on to the Legit Lady Podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Lee. Thank you for having me. Amazing. And I've told you how this works. Whether you looked at the questions or not, that's totally fine. I looked at them and I thought, oh God, those questions are hard. I'll think about them later. <laughs> that's by design. Don't worry. Yeah, Nobody comes into the podcast being like, oh yeah, walk in the park, easy. Yeah. Yeah. I've had people come in with pages of notes and then they usually set the notes aside halfway through and then people who 
haven't actually even read them in the first place. Oh, great. Perfect. I'm somewhere in between. I'm somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah. You're totally good. Uh, But we're looking forward to getting to know you through 10 main questions. And then I have my very high tech notes beside me with plenty of domain specific questions that we'll get into as well. Okay. But to kick things off, Mm -hmm. let's dive in head first with question one, which is what advice would you give to your teenage self? I kind of feel like I had my teenage self in my now 22-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, Sia uh, and I often talk about, because I find that young people today um, are so uh, destination-oriented. I'm going to get to this place, and then this place is going to be this magical place where all of a sudden all my dreams come true. And I don't know if it's celebrity culture. I don't know if it's uh, the social media aspects, because her generation was the first generation that grew up on social media, Mm -hmm. that you feel like there's something that you're missing that you need to get. And as soon as you get that thing, all will, you know, reveal itself. Mm -hmm. So I keep saying to uh, Anastasia to be very open to uh, what experiences come your way um, and just be open to actually experiencing whatever you are and being present. Uh, You often hear about people who uh, get cancer, who are very sick or something happens to them and they say, I'm really learning to live in the moment and enjoy every day. And I sometimes feel like people are trying to get somewhere so that they don't really look at where they are and what they can learn from that, how they can enjoy it, the experiences that they're having. And oftentimes they actually have to leave whatever they're doing to actually find that grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always say to Sia, there's no there here. So just, you know, don't worry about it so much. Right. So. And in this generation, we're so obsessed with trying to capture moments too, like on Instagram or things like that, that we do forget to actually live and experience that present. We're more involved in trying to share it and capture it for social credibility. Yeah, it's funny. um, uh, My husband and he was in digital a really long time. And uh, that's actually how I met your dad was actually through my husband. And we did a project with Derek DeKerkhoff and your father back in the day. Small world. Very small world. Shout out to dad. Yeah, shout out to dad (laughs) and Derek. Um, and uh, I, I think that what, what Peter um, was uh, always talking about was that live is going to become such an important uh, thing into the future because everything else is so manufactured. And in a world where everything's so manufactured, what becomes actually the polarity that everybody's looking for in a manufactured world? And I think that, um, you know, whether we use the word authenticity, which I actually feel like there should be a marketing pantheon where the word authenticity goes directly in it and it's not allowed back out. Um, <laughs> but um, where where people actually learn to have those experiences and, and things, you know, rather than big in those big moments, it's really about small. So for sure. That makes sense. And you were saying that this is something that you're living right now through your daughter growing up. Uh, is being present something that you found you struggled with yourself as a teenager? Or was that something that you did really well 
because we didn't have social media back then. Oh, I'm Gen X. Like there was no future. So I don't know if I was really great at being present, but I was really great at not worrying about what was going to happen because, you know, when we when we all graduated school, there was like this huge recession. Um, I'd been working since I was 12 or 13. I was worked in the service industry. I worked at a bakery. You know, I'd always been, I worked at a video store. Remember those things? They right. had, like we were the first video store actually that had the videos in the shelves, like on the oh. shelves where you didn't have to go behind. So innovative. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Really wow. innovative. Um, it's the true Canadian way. It's the trust system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that, uh, for, uh, me growing up, it was just always about, um, you know, just surviving, you know, my teenagers were for me more about just, just surviving and getting to the next day and, uh, and, and not really thinking too much past that, for, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, that being said, though, you are a very accomplished individual. I've admired you online, even though weirdly enough, this is the first time we've met in yeah, person, right? Uh, but in looking at your background and looking at what you studied, I mean, you studied uh, history and geography, yes. and you then made a transition into marketing. You now head up a wonderful marketing firm. Uh, how did that channel happen? How did what you, happened? Yeah, how did what happened? Happen? And, and funny, I'm a geography student who literally gets lost in my own city all the time. Like no idea how to read a map. Uh, if, if I'm one of those people on Waze where if it told me to go into Lake Ontario, I probably would. Oh, no. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's you know, I think like uh, so many people who were early in digital, and uh, I think we, we found ourselves there on a very strange journey. Um, there was no digital programs. There was definitely nothing called digital marketing, not really. Um, so for me, um, I actually, my in my 20s, I thought I was actually going to go work with, I worked with the North York Board of Education working with behavioral kids, mm-hmm. um, which of course, there's no way anybody would call them behavioral kids anymore. I, I don't know what they would, would call them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people with challenges of social determinants of health or something like that. Uh-huh. But I worked in the Jane Finch corridor right. and uh, I thought I was actually going to go and work with disenfranchised youth. And uh, I met my ex-husband and he uh, did his um, uh, degree of environmental planning, uh, environmental studies with my sister who uh, did environmental studies. And, uh, you know, we fell in love. And as these things happen, I was like, going to move to Greece. And I lived in Greece for many years. Wow. And there is no such thing as urban youth in Greece the way that there is here because families take care of, you know, families and it wasn't as dramatic as it is now, the socioeconomic situation there. Um, so I actually found myself taking, uh, rather than than doing um, uh, education, I actually went in and got my degree. And the thing that I was the most interested in was environmental resource management. So I actually worked as an environmental, I guess, an environmental planner. I worked for World Wildlife, where uh, Vasily was um, an actual campaigner for World Wildlife in, in Athens. And uh, I loved the work uh, that we did. Um, I did a lot of studies on the implementation of one of the EU policies uh, in in Greece. Um, I actually often joke that uh, we're responsible for Brexit um, because I, <laughs> I wrote the legal strategy to stop a river diversion project um, in in Greece, and uh, it was the first case where a member state. 
uh, of the EU actually used EU legislation to uh, supersede a member state law. Oh, wow. So it was actually, we used the environmental um, uh, directive on the environment to stop the river diversion. Of course, it all got overturned over time and all that sort of thing. Sure. Um, but that was one of the main issues with Brexit, which was self-determination and the EU laws uh, taking precedent over the member state laws. Right. So if someone's looking for someone to blame for Brexit, it's you're an easy target. It's got absolutely it, got it. me. It's Vasily and it's a couple other people <laughs> from about four environmental organizations. Um, but uh, so coming back to Canada, because we, uh, we moved back to Canada. Um, I Why just, did you guys move back? You know what? I found it very challenging living in another country. I'm yeah. I'm Jewish. Uh -huh. uh, it's at that time. I don't know how it is today. The fact that I was Jewish was a big deal. I mean, people. Some people would talk to me about the Elders of Zion. If anybody's familiar with that very anti-Semitic book, mm -hmm. um, and uh, also, you know, I'm I'm this person who's traveled the world. I really love Southern Ontario. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this funny thing. It's just, I feel at home here. I feel like I'm such a weirdo and I, I don't always fit. And going to another country where that then amplifies itself in the, you're struggling with the language and you're an immigrant, you just don't feel like you fit. And Greece is a country made of small villages um, where even if you're from another village, you're a foreigner. So right. you're foreign on top of foreign. And I do think the male-female thing was very challenging for me uh, when we lived there. It, it, I felt like I was the shadow of Vasily, who was the campaigner and worked at WWF and got, you know, was much more forward. Um, and it was hard, I think, in some ways to have a true partnership there. Hmm. But he really didn't like it here and I didn't really like it there. So, you know, that that was going to be a challenge for us. Did so, you leave him behind or? <laughs> um, no, well, Vasily came with me ah. and we, we had our daughter, Sia, who I was right. mentioning, and we lived here for many years. But then he really tried here and he was really unhappy and he couldn't find his way here. And he, like, a lot of Greeks um, really felt the the sense of place in his home. So, mm -hmm. I mean, how ridiculous. Two of the most inflexible people about where they live <laughs> in the world decide to fall in love and have a child. And, you know, I have lots of advice for people about long distance relationships. And if you want to, if you fall in love with someone who wants to live in a different country, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The advice is don't. <laughs> don't. Well, yeah. And, you know, I try actually in my old age, I try not to tell people to do or don't, but I would say my experience was, and so yeah. some of the watchouts might be something like that. Um, so yeah, so ended up coming back to Canada and, 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 you know, I had worked in digital early on. I was the first employee of telepersonals, uh, which I think turned into Lava Life eventually. Um, and uh, I, I, there were a lot of things I really enjoyed about working at uh, telepersonals. I liked the business side, even though I didn't know it at the time. And they had actually asked me to open their first US office. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. I'm not opening the dating, the digital dating <laughs> office in the States. That's crazy. Why would I do that? And I went <laughs> off and did my, you know, save the world environmental stuff. So when I came back, I thought, you know, I write in my personal life and I thought, you know, maybe I really want to do communications. And uh, I got myself a very junior job at a communications firm called ICE, Integrated Communications and Entertainment, uh, proceeded to get unceremoniously fired five months later. No. Oh. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Uh, why? why? Um, well, I think that there were two sides to that that particular coin. Actually, maybe three sides, to be fair. Um, <laughs> I think the first side is they they were having some financial issues that just came to light and they needed to um, 
lay off a significant amount of people and right. and I was on contract and it was between me and someone else and sure. they chose the other person. Um I think uh I think as well um I think that I think I was unmanageable. Like I think that I, they had a small uh, department that was doing web stuff and internet stuff and this was in 1997 and I I just loved it. I don't know what. I mean, I just, it just was, I was like, it was complex. It was challenging. It involved culture and people. And what is this new thing? And how are people going to use it? And I think I understood it inherently being an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. Very early on, I understood networks and I understood ecosystems and I understood uh, decentralization and community. And so I, and also I was a bit older and, you know, took a whole bunch of stuff off my resume and said, I really love to photocopy, but I had worked as an environmental planner and I'd been working for 10 years. And really, if you look at my teen years, I'd been working for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I was working with people who I was, I was almost the expert in digital, but they were much more senior than me. And I think in retrospect, when I look back on it, I was like, oh yeah, I might've fired me too. Like, like <laughs> why am I talking in that meeting? Like, I probably should have just sat back and looked and listened a little bit more, but you know, that was youth, you know? Yeah. So. No, that's, that's actually really interesting. And how has that, or has it shaped you as a leader uh, and the dynamic that you create in your meetings and your conference rooms? Um, you mean just as far as like uh, just doing the operational HR sort of stuff or do you mean more? More more about people who, again, might have come in in a junior role and they might be a bit more outspoken or do you try to encourage people to be more outspoken? Has oh, that imprinted you as a leader? Yeah. Oh, no. Well, for sure. I mean, I think the thing is. I always joke. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would be the last person to tell people to, you know, not speak up. I mean, I've never in a million years, but I do say to people, everybody's welcome to speak up, but you'll also be challenged. So if you're going to speak up in a meeting and you're very junior, if I don't agree with you, or if I want to have the discussion about that, then you have to be comfortable with having that debate and that discussion with me, being a more senior person, being a more seasoned person, and then having that, you know, equal relationship. And I think that sometimes people think that they're going to be comfortable with that. But, you know, I think that that's, you know, a, a challenging thing for some people. At the end of the day, though, I would say we have a very uh, de, um, non-hierarchical office mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we really we really try to use much more, I hate using the word agile methodologies, but we really do try to work in much smaller collaborative groups mm. and, um, you know, really trying to empower people to, you know, succeed and fail on their own merits. And I think that therefore you have to encourage people to speak out and to say something. Uh, diversity is important and inclusion is important, not only in what you look for in how you're going to uh, create a modern office. I think it's also a inclusion and diversity of opinions and thoughts. And that comes from a lot of different places and you have to be able to create a culture that will uh, allow for it. That's really refreshing to hear, especially as a company that has been around for at least, it's almost eight years now. Eight years, right? I know. It's the longest I've ever had a job. <laughs> <laughs> I 
my own company. I was like thinking about that. Wow, that's a really long time, eight oh, years at one place. That's amazing. Well, you were saying, hey, I'm, I'm quote unquote unmanageable. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm totally and, unmanageable. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's not likely that you're going to fire yourself, hopefully. Yeah. Well, you never know. I, I, I There have been a couple of days where I've thought, you know what, that I really suck. I should fire myself for sure. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting because um, I had a tech startup at some point and uh and we were two women who ran the tech startup. And uh, Vanessa Williams, not like the movie star, was my CTO. <laughs> Vanessa's a woman of color. She's one of the first uh, visible minorities. She's one of the first um, women programmers, one of the, probably the first Java programmers in Canada. She contributed to the original XML database um, and, uh, you know, hyper smart and bright. And I look back on it now and it was 2000 and I guess four or five. I think we were crazy. We were never going to get funding. We were never going to get funding. And I just didn't know it back then. I just absolutely didn't know it. So I think that, uh, yeah, the the world's changed a lot in that regard. And I think that there's much more of a conversation that's happening around that. But you really do have to actively recruit for inclusion and diversity because inherently our industry, my industry in marketing, mm -hmm. is not very diverse. And so the pool of people you're even choosing from or finding out there, you just inherently, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, my father was a doctor, I'm a privileged white woman. So right. my own networks of friends and friends of friends when there's junior people are going to be people who look uh, and are a lot more like me. So, you know, you really have to go out of your way to go beyond that. And what are some of the ways in which you are seeking diverse talent? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard because I think that, uh, you know, we put out the word to various people, um, and especially when it comes to juniors um, and, and that sort of thing, and really encourage um, uh, people from different places, like people I know who are from different socioeconomic backgrounds, reaching out to them and saying, hey, do you know anybody from your community who might be interested in a junior mm -hmm. position and that sort of thing? Um, I... I think it's really hard because I, you know, I think for a while uh, we were we were hiring in the early days community managers and literally we kept getting the same people. But the truth is that they were a lot easier to train because there was a common language and a, a common sort of uh, perspective and all the rest of it. So you also have to be prepared, um, even in the interview process, uh, to uh, be more open and find different questions and find different uh, ways to go about uh, making sure that you're giving people an equal chance to be able to, you know, understand your own bias. And mm -hmm. I think that that's a very hard thing to do. And, you know, I think we're better than some. But I think that we all have bias and it's sort of recognizing your own bias and how to get around it. Mm. I'm really glad you brought that up because recognizing your conscious or unconscious bias is one of those things that I would say few leaders are actively vocally talking about. I'm going to keep calling you a leader, even though I know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. Nobody can see me, but I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Quote, air quotes, leader. Air quotes. <laughs> um, but it, it's true. It's such an important acknowledgement to make. And it's something that many of us live in denial about. But when you look around, if everyone looks and sounds exactly like you, then something is wrong. Yeah, no, for sure. But I, th I think that, um, you know, uh, 
you know, it's it's my personal thing right now that we're living in a world where the conversations are getting much smaller. I don't like dogmatism of any sort. I love having open debate and open discussion about things that are controversial, that things that make people uncomfortable. And it's not because I'm a confrontational person. Um, I actually, confrontation makes me very, very uncomfortable. And it oftentimes, you know, I get my feelings, people would not know this about me. I get my feelings hurt very easily. And I will harp on things for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Aww. That person said that to me and, you know, that, you know, whatever. And that, no, I don't think they like me. And that's just such a, uh, drives me crazy because it's almost like this thing that's like still with me from, you know, being bullied in grade seven or something stupid like that. Yeah. Yeah. I see um, myself in a lot of what you're saying. Oh, it's just, it's so like, <laughs> just get over it already. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I lost track of what we were talking about. So. <laughs> we were talking about uh, unconscious bias and talking about controversial topics and oh, things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do think that uh, the conversation is getting much smaller right mm -hmm. now. And I think that that's whether you're on the left or you're on the right. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my favorite, um, and I, I send it to a lot because I have, I have a lot of friends who are extremely left and I have a lot of people who are friends and I know who are extremely right. And it's a unique position to be in because you can actually, you know, hear and see different perspectives. And uh, there is this guy, and I always say, like, I talking about change, you can't change people and we shouldn't give that person a place to speak and free speech is an excuse for racism and sexism and all these sorts of things. And there's a great... Um, a podcast about the um, godson of David Duke, um, who uh, had a magazine that was like, like he was a hardcore, like teen racist, uh, you know, anti-Semite, mm -hmm. had a whole online magazine, like calling up to arms. And, you know, he, he literally thought people who were white and Aryan were just legitimately you know, smarter and all the rest of the things that people convince themselves of. And he went to Berkeley, I think it was, which I thought was a very odd thing for him to have done considering his background. Yeah, of all places. Of all places. <laughs> and he became friends with um, uh, 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 some kids who were Jewish who literally spent the time to deconstruct all of his wonderful arguments. And he completely reversed himself. He completely got out of his community. He completely changed his mind. He completely allowed rational thought to actually, um, you know, create a, a new conversation for himself. And uh, social media is this wonderful thing where uh, 80, you know, 95, 97% of people are actually listening and reading to the conversation. They're not actually having the conversation. So I think it's important to actually participate in those conversations so that you can actually bring a new perspective to people. Mm -hmm. And you may not, you may not, you know, change the mind of the troll who you're speaking to, but what about that 97% who's actually reading the conversation? So hmm. you know, those things are important. It is important. And something that's very tempting online is to block people who have opinions that yeah. are different to yours yeah. and then you insulate yourself in this echo chamber Correct. and there was a lot of videos and a lot of opinion pieces that came out after trump got elected and to say this is your fault yeah. more or less for doing that yeah. and instead of being able to have great dialogues with people who have different opinions to yours is ultimately opinions are on a spectrum in our mind. It's very easy to lump people into left versus right. Yeah. Whereas it's not always that clear and people who might be a little bit towards the right could just as easily be brought over to another side or another way of thinking about to your point that you just made. I mean, if they have 
the right perspective, if their arguments become deconstructed, if they go and fact check, those are all of the great reasons that they could eventually change. Yeah, it's funny. People, um, I was at a client's the other day and we wanted to have a conversation that was going to make the clients very uncomfortable and we knew it going in and uh and they got immediately well are you saying this and does this mean that and we're saying no 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 this is a journey and we want to see what we can learn and where the guardrails are and what the watchouts are and uh it's it's just funny when things make people uncomfortable they tend to want to block them mm -hmm. as opposed to tend to want to have a conversation about them and what can I learn from it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I see that in all aspects of life. And, you know, I'm just someone who's always been involved in social justice in my own mind when it comes to my company, when it comes to the, the issues that I care about. I have an entire Twitter that I created um, for when Trump got elected, where I am a middle age Republican man from North Carolina. <laughs> Right. So I could have so I could have an honest and relevant conversation with people because if they knew what my background was, they would stop listening because they would just call me a libtard or whatever else they were going to call a snowflake, a, a snowflake or whatever. And I just I just wanted to debate policy. I didn't want to talk about politics. I wanted to debate policy. And so was questioning the Muslim ban and just asking, OK, that's fine. But does it make us safer? You know, let's have the real conversation. Right. Does it actually make us safer? And everybody was talking about all of these other peripheral things. And for me, it was a very simple policy question, which is the reason for the policy is our fear of what we believe is our safety. Will we become more safe or less safe? And it was very interesting after debating and going back and forth with people, what I'd find is people would just drift off and stop talking. They would definitely go to my profile, see I'm a Republican. And then they were like, okay, well let's just agree to disagree in a very polite manner. But again, <laughs> funny how that happens. Yeah. It's for the 97% of people who maybe, maybe you can have an impact. Maybe you can see something, you know, help someone see something in a different way. So, wow. Yeah. Well, good on you for putting in the effort to have those conversations. Yeah. I feel like when I turned, when I turned 50, I was like, you know, I need to stop doing that as much as causing <laughs> a lot of anxiety to <laughs> think about the world. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a, a black hole. You can just get totally totally sucked into you and you definitely like get sucked into having that black hole. I, do, I would definitely would like to do it less but <laughs> I do feel like if if we all get too tired that's what that's what the people want yeah they want us to get too tired mm -hmm. so I think it's something that it's important to continue to have the conversation although I don't think you should do it when you're on holiday I think there should always be a vacation yes. from the conversation when you're on yes. holiday. yes Hundred percent. Yeah. Phone phone ban, social media ban exactly. a little bit. Lock exactly. it up. Exactly. <laughs> but that's really cool. I'm gonna have to check out that Twitter after the after the episode. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I wanna move on to question two, which is Oh my god, we're only on question two. I know two. we're only on question two and there's know, plenty I'm more. Like going off on politics and all no, the rest of it, so. that's the beauty of the podcast. Right. Yes, we have ten men questions, but all the podcasts are so different because every single woman I have the pleasure of speaking to comes from such an interesting background. Right. Yeah. So don't worry about it. You're not, you're yeah, doing okay. it right. You're I'm, doing I'll, it right. I'll try to keep on track. No, no, no. There's no right or wrong way to do this. Uh, question two is what's your proudest accomplishment? Proudest. I think this is where I got stuck when I was reading the questions. I was like, proudest accomplishments. Um, well, look, 
I, you know, I hate when women in business, I, I still remember stop listening to the startup podcast when they had a woman CEO and she was in the therapist's office crying about her guilt with her children and all of that sort of stuff. I was like, oh, why do all the women have to talk about their children? But of course, my proudest accomplishment, of course, are my kids, um, Sia and Sam and being a mother. And I feel like I'm very good at being a mother. And I'm actually very proud of the fact that I have been able to accomplish running businesses and being an entrepreneur and being present for my kids. Um, my father was an OBGYN. And uh, I think when I was four, I asked my mother who he was. And, uh, you know, because he was at the hospital back in the day, doctors were on call if you right. were an obstetrician all the time. So I didn't see my dad for weeks at a time. And I was the youngest of four. So, you know, the and I was a girl. So like, right. you know, I didn't golf. So he didn't teach me how to golf. So it, I wasn't that interesting. So I, I felt like I had a very absentee uh, father. Um, and I think I associated... Well, uh, people who work don't really have to talk to their kids. But then, uh. of course, when I had my own kids, I was like, well, I don't want to be that kind of parent. I want to actively be involved and actively engaged in my kids' lives and all the rest of it. But I also work crazy hours and I'm working all the time and I'm, you know, there's a lot of challenges with that. So I feel like I've been able to do both. I feel like, although you can ask them but that I that <laughs> yeah, been, what would they say would yeah. they agree um yeah I I Sia and I have a very close relationship so um and uh I think that uh, she feels that I'm a great mom um uh, she looks to me like we look to each other for a lot of, you know, support and advice and all, all things. That's really um, nice. I was always a bit tough on her. Uh, my family used to get on my case. Oh, you're so tough on Sia. I make Sia pay for 50% of her education. Yes, I can afford to pay for the whole thing. Um, but I want her That's to have... That's an important lesson to teach your, your child. Yeah. Responsibility, that autonomy, financial independence. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, she knows that if she were stuck... I would help her. And, you know, sure. again, that's the benefits of certain privileged lives and all the mm -hmm. rest of it. But, um, you know, she doesn't have that sense of like she she has a real sense of I may not always be there. Mm -hmm. And you never know when your life situation is going to change and you need to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's probably you know, I think that that's what I was like as a teenager because I saw my mom got divorced and then she lost all of her friends and then her socioeconomic situation changed and she, you know, ended up being a secretary and, you know, like worked crazy hours and didn't really enjoy the jobs that she was doing for a very long time. And I just thought, oh, I don't ever want to depend on anybody else for my financial freedom. Yep. That will never happen to me. Mm -hmm. And I actually recently had a relative of mine who uh, was in a situation where her husband, who suddenly died, um, uh, really had the financial reins in that family. And, you know, now she's finding herself in her mid-50s having to figure a lot of different things out. And I came back from seeing her and I looked at every, you know, woman in the office and I was like, you know, whatever you do, like, make sure you guys can take care of yourself. Don't, mm -hmm. don't be with someone else, love them, have 
solid partnerships, but always make sure you can take care of yourself because you just never know what's going to happen in this world. Yep. So whether it's cleaning toilets or being the CEO of a company, just make your own money, you know, and and learn to take care of yourself. And I think that that's a really important thing for women in particular, because I, I don't know if that was always the case. Yeah, uh, agreed. And that was certainly echoed in an earlier podcast that we had with a fantastic financial advisor, Senna. She echoed the exact same thing, that financial literacy financial literacy is one of those things that every single person, let alone woman, should certainly have. Um, but as you were sharing that story, I, I see myself in a lot of these stories that you're sharing. And you know, my family was not financially secure growing up. And that's what inspired me at a very young age to sock away money to start seeing a financial advisor when I was quite young, right. even you know going to the bank, even though I didn't know that that's not the best way to invest your money, but, you know, do, at least doing the right actions and trying to think with that head as soon as I started making a solid paycheck. Right. And myself, I'm, you know, not not super young, but I'm fairly young and I'm in a position to be starting to do things in my life that I wouldn't have been able to do had I not started so early. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny because Sia had at some point said to me um, when she was younger, she said, I don't know, she was doing something at school and they were talking about people who take risks. And she said, yeah, but you're not like that. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she said, well, you're not a very risky, per you know, risky person. I said, see, I've quit my jobs when I don't like them without jobs. I was just like, you know what, I'm done. Or, you know, and I'll figure it out. And, right. and I was like, you know, most people don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah. Most people are like, they have to go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Um, I would say that's an, an, an amazing thing about millennials in general, like the younger generation. I feel like uh, they almost... It has, it's a bit of a double-sided thing, but, you know, from what I can see, uh, and maybe it's because they're starting so much younger than we were because we couldn't get jobs until we were 28 or 29 mm -hmm. and they're getting jobs when they're like 22, 23. So like, you know, they're already in the workforce for five or six years, but I do see people saying, you know what, I'm not sure this is for me. You know, this was my first job. I'm going to go travel the world or I'm going to go do something else, or now I'm going to switch to something else. And you wouldn't have seen that as much when, when I was younger, for sure or not. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of that comes from that sense of community and that sense of network, being able to hear a lot of these stories and see it play out online. Yeah. Um, although some people have a pretty cushy safety net of bank of mom and dad to be able to facilitate some of those jaunts around the world versus other people. Unfortunately, they don't necessarily have that option yeah, to no, for sure. quit their job and and try to pursue their dreams in another way. Yeah. So. Although, although I will say that the, not necessarily the travel thing, but the, but the not quitting the job, I've seen people from so many different socioeconomic backgrounds actually doing that. Now, the truth is a lot of them still live at home. Mom and dad just, you know, happen to live in a very small house and sure. you know, a totally different area. Um, and, and maybe actually because people are staying home, it allows for a little bit more uh, flexibility and freedom. Like we were all out of the house at 18 or 19. Like right. there was no staying home. Right. Like I don't know if, I'm sure I would have been welcomed, but it just wasn't a thing that any of us did. Yeah. You know, so um, but now people stay home for so much longer yep. that it it um, is a little bit easier, uh, you know, and 
Plus, how would you ever live in the city of Toronto if you weren't living at home? And, uh, you know, I was asking my son, well, what would you rather do? Like, you know, have a million dollars or do something you love and struggle. And he's in the in the zone of a million dollars right now. And I, I again, feel like that's <laughs> like the world that we live in. Um, and uh, I think it's I think it's important at least to try to do the things that that you love. It may not work out that way eventually, but just trying matters. Why do you think he said the million dollars? Um, that I, that's a good question. Uh, Sam is a little bit Alex P. Keaton. If you ever watched that show, um, uh, for the older generation, everybody just nodded their head for the younger generation. They're all like, who's <laughs> Alex P. Keaton? Um, Google search. Yeah, Google search. Um, yeah, I think he's just got like this this math brain and this business mind. And so he's always like, how much is that Pokemon card worth? You mm -hmm. know, like it's it's uh, a world where he sees a lot of the heroes are billionaires. I mean, you know, like it's Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, all of these people and the uh, and all the musicians. And it's all about that sort of wealth culture and what people can buy. So mm -hmm. I think with Sam, it's a lot of uh, just getting perspective. And, you know, we we live up, up north and there's people from so many different socioeconomic backgrounds, which is really nice. We live in a farming community and there's, you know, gazillionaire farmers to, you know, sort of what you would consider more, I guess, working class people. Um, and uh, it's just all about perspective. And I mm -hmm. think Sam's just, uh, you know, he's a kid. He's like, what can I buy? Yeah. You know, I'm going to say he also is a saver. So he likes to save up his allowance so that he can then buy stuff. You know, he loves to online shop. Yeah, maybe That's it's e-commerce. E-commerce is the problem. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> no, I mean, but those are really great foundational blocks for someone like him, even though he's artistically inclined. Yeah. There's a lot of artistically inclined people who don't have any of those math skills or any of those finance yeah. type behaviors inside of them. So I, I see a great matchup there for him yeah. to do a bit of both. So Sam... Yeah, there you I'm go. I'm excited to see where you end up in the next <laughs> We're 10 years. We're all excited to see where Sam's going to end up. He's a, he's a, he's a funny cat. Oh, so. so sweet. That's wonderful. Uh, so question three, let's move on here, is how do you balance work and life? So you're talking a little bit about... Oh, I don't. Being yeah. able... No? Yeah, no. <laughs> No, I don't. I mean, I think in part, I'm an extreme person as as an individual. Uh, when I do something, I do it full on. Mm. Um, so I, I think that this, this idea of balance, I think is, is, is a is an outdated concept to some extent, particularly if you're a business person. I think it's very difficult to run a successful business with the demands that you have and then have balance. So mm -hmm. as an example, this weekend, I've been like working nonstop mm -hmm. since January. It's been a very busy, very stressful, high demands, a lot of work needed to get done in short periods of time, 24 seven. Right. And, you know, working every weekend. And I literally this weekend, I just was like, I just can't. Yeah. I just can't. And I'm catching up rewatching Game of Thrones. So there was getting a little ready. bit of getting ready for <laughs> April for uh, Game of Thrones to return. So I just I was I was lazy. I was just a lazy business person. Well, I'll tell you what, yesterday and today, I regretted that. I was just like, I like woke up, I think it was like um I can't remember like one of the nights, Sunday night or something. And I had like five, we use Slack. I had like five, hey, just wondering when you're gonna get me that deliverable. And I was like, 
oh crap. And I was up all night, like until like four or five o'clock in the morning, just like, it was like back in the day when I used to have essays, like I just, you know, like was creating all of this stuff that I'd been thinking about in the back of my mind for weeks. And then I spit it all out. And then, you know, it takes a lot more out of me actually now that I'm older, I used to be able to do that and stay up like for weeks on end. It's harder for me now. Um, and, uh, So, you know, that was really nice getting a little bit of time off. Uh, But then, you know, all of a sudden you're working till four or five o'clock in the morning to catch up. Um, You know, maybe I didn't spend a couple days with Sam because I work in the city and then I go back up north. uh, So I have, you know, the going back and forth thing happening. Well, then he and I, you know, I have to, you know, not have to, but then we'll spend like two days together, like really intensely. And then he won't see me for three days. So for me, it's a it's a it's a swinging pendulum Mm -hmm. that is not anything about balance. It's just, okay. Okay, okay, all my time with Sam. Okay, and then see is like, you know, I'm not getting enough attention. Okay, all my time with Sam. And then, you know, business and business. So um, usually uh, the people who get the least amount of time are myself and my husband. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that that's always the big challenge. So I keep joking him. We just need like a weekend away, but we're just like, yeah. You're like, when's like, that going to happen? Never, it'll <laughs> happen when, you know, I retire. So. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I was having this conversation recently with someone who would say, um, like someone who had a very similar way of thinking as some days I'm doing absolutely nothing. I am just a log on a couch and other days I am doing absolutely everything all day and all night. And it's like, you know what? It averages out. She's like, at least in total and average, I am consistent as a human being because I get a little bit of everything done. Uh, Seems like almost extreme time blocking. Yeah. (laughs) Like day blocking. I think the weird thing is for me, though, um, that I'm someone where I get bored very easily. Mm. You know, I was actually talking to um, somebody who uh, works with me and she's came directly out of school and I think she's been with us for about six years and we were just talking about, you know, so what are some of the options and, you know, where she wants to go uh, next. And, uh, and she was like, so, you know, like, how did you track the path of whatever your career was going to be? And I just said to her, honestly, I I just didn't want to be bored. I literally, (laughs) my career is all about trying not to be bored. So when I master something and I can probably make the most amount of money and I can probably be the most successful, I'm like, yeah, kind of bored. Okay, let's go do something else. Yeah. So for me, it's all about, you know, how can I challenge my brain? And how can I do something nobody else has done? The awesome thing about digital in back in the day is every day was like that. Oh, Peter and I were talking about it because, you know, Peter, I have all the original, the original GM Canada website um, architectures uh, at our house because Peter did the first GM Canada website. He did the first Molson.com. So and he's a pack rat. So I have all of the original documents for all of the original first websites in Canada. They're they're ridiculous. They're five boxes. Like one says email (laughs) server, you know, (laughs) like it's one says database. Like it's just, it's just stupid. Um, But we were always inventing and we were always doing things that had never been done before. And still some of the things that we did back then are more innovative or the technology is just catching up with what we wanted to do back then strategically, but we weren't able to do. So it's just all about, you know, how do you keep your mind busy? How do you stay creative? And for me, part of my problem is I have so many companies on the go. I have so many projects on the go that it's exhausting. And then I do that extreme thing. But the problem is when I don't have that and things slow down, I like get really freaked out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, uh, my mind starts to just 
you know, I have trouble being still. My sister keeps saying to me, I need to, you know, really master meditation. I'm like, yeah, not in this lifetime. <laughs> but she's probably right. I probably need a bit of that. I know. I was going to say, like, you've certainly chosen uh, a good career path for that type of temperament of saying, hey, I always need to be creating, thinking, innovating. Yeah. How is that manifesting in your business now of that trying to invent or reinvent and think of something that's new and exciting. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't think that that process ever stops. I mean, you know, um, our business has been extreme uh, as far as like where we got our revenue eight years ago and where we're getting our revenue now. You know, it was like uh, literally community management, social media strategy, social media and all the rest of it was like 80, 90 percent of our revenue. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's, you know, I don't want to say it's not any of our revenue because social we always saw as an evolution of the way that human beings communicate. Mm. But, you know, uh, probably, you know, much more of our 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 uh, the work we do now is much more about insights and culture and and then really execution and advertising. So uh, you're always having to reinvent yourself because the truth is that the marketing industry in Canada is so, in my opinion, so far behind um, what's going on in the United States. Uh, many, many. Oh, really? Oh, so far. So, 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 How so? so far. Um, uh, there's a lot of marketers who are still very much in a very, you know, 10 years ago mode. Um, I see social strategies where I'm like, oh, how very 2013. And huh. that may not <laughs> seem that may not seem like a big deal. But if you're still doing organic content and you're still doing a content calendar and you're still, you know, like that's not what anybody that that's not what anybody should be doing and you're you should always look to see what the startups are doing the the independent startups they have been digitally merchandising on Instagram and using e-commerce on Instagram for the last year and a half two years in a way that you wouldn't see the big brands and so you try to have a conversation with people about that but it's very difficult because people have built out these very elaborate teams in a very specific way and then they're the agencies themselves are feeding business models and you know People don't want to necessarily reinvent their expertise and mm -hmm. don't want to actually try things that are different and interesting and new. And, you know, so for us, I'm always looking for who are the clients who are thinking differently? Who are the companies that are thinking differently? Who are the startups who are thinking differently? And then I try really, really hard to try to get them to be interested in working with us, you know, because <laughs> uh, we learn so much on those projects. We learn so much. Right. Oh, gosh, I can only imagine. It's interesting because I've spoken to a lot of marketing agencies and it seems like it's uh, an industry that has traditionally very high turnover. Mm -hmm. um, why is that? Uh yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is the pace that the industry mm -hmm. uh, has. I mean, it's a service-based industry where the clients have all the power. Um, so if somebody says, well, I need it Monday, and you're like, well, you know, I, we had to turn down a pitch at a time where, um, you know, our, our, some of our clients were reducing their business, but everybody was so tired. We had to, we had to turn down a pitch that was like really interesting work because they briefed us on December like 21st and they wanted oh. it for January 4th. Oh, like, that's just, that's just like, what kind of client is that going to be? Right. right? They're basically saying, we don't care about you and your staff. We're going to make you work at Christmas time and best of luck with you. Um, and we just decided, hey, we're not going to do it, you know. Um, and uh, there's some cost to that, you know, like 
maybe you're having to lay somebody off or, you know, whatever. So you're always trying to balance all of those extreme things that are happening in your business. But, you know, our business is a business where, you know, two weeks ago, uh, a project, a client gave us a call. I'm sorry that $200,000 project's not happening on another client the next day. Oh, here's a new $100,000 project. It's so extreme all the time. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to be looking out past six months and sort of sorting out where you're going to be. Because if you're going on a month to month basis, you will drive yourself mad and you will drive your sa your staff mad mm -hmm. as well. So I think it's just, you know, one of those things where um, people are always understaffed and overworked and uh, it's, it's the margins are getting smaller and smaller. So at some point, you know, it, it feels like, well, is it, is it even going to be worth it? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's rare to find clients where they care about your profitability because they're so worried about theirs, you know, and uh, I think it's just the devaluing of marketing partners and the best mm -hmm. clients see you as a partner and you are providing that value to them as a partner. They're just few and far between now. Mm -hmm. But when you find them, you hold on to them. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, and it, it I mean, it speaks to your character as well, even turning down that type of request of, hey, of course you can take on this project that's super last minute over the holidays. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm sure, plenty of business leaders who would say, yep, let's do this and find a way to make this happen. So I think that's pretty admirable. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard. I mean, I think that uh, the the people who work with you, other than the senior people, have no visibility with what goes on behind the scenes of running this kind of business. I think that there's been such a romanticization of entrepreneurship. Um, I feel like entrepreneurship is like a disease that I have that I that I can't get rid of. I mean, honestly, I keep my husband keeps saying to me, "You keep you keep complaining about entrepreneurship, and you just started two more companies." I'm like, I know, I don't know why I just did that because um, it's it's about wanting to create something from right. nothing and all the rest of it. But I think it's really hard because I think that from, from somebody else's point of view, like as an example, um, uh, when community management was going away, we had all these really wonderful, creative, smart people well, I couldn't put them all in strategy. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I had to look at what I felt their skills were and say, well, we have a job in production or we have a job here. And I think that, you know, I, if there's seen comments they've written online or, you know, heard from other people, you know, how, you know, that person thought that they were going to tell me what job I should do. And it's like, it wasn't about that. It was about trying to, you know, actually hopefully place somebody and make sure that they have a job and try to help out. But that's not the way other people perceive that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that that, you know, and the truth is they don't need to. Right. Like mm -hmm. everybody, everybody's going to have their own perspective. I just have found it in my career because especially in marketing and advertising, uh, junior people get senior very, very quickly, very often. Hmm. Um, it's it's very interesting to me seeing when people go from that having reporting into people and being hypercritical and how dare they and all of this. And then they're in positions of power and then they're like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Hard. Oh my God. It's hard <laughs> to make everybody happy and it's hard to create culture in an office and it's hard to be responsible and you're never going to get credit for it. So I think that that's some of the hard part. I was saying to my husband the other day, um, you know, we're extremely fair on, in a lot of regards and I go out of my way. And then if somebody 
doesn't see that, I'm just like, why do I even bother? I should just be one of those evil capitalists that's just like, <laughs> screw everybody and I'm just going to do it for myself. And Peter was like, you're, you're never, nobody's ever going to get you credit for that. So you just got to do what you think is the right thing to do and plow on and just try not to take it personally mm. when people don't see it and do it because you know it's the right thing to do, not because of anything else. It's just hard because sometimes like you want to just go find the people and just go, let me tell you, let's have a conversation. But, right. you know, people learn through their own experiences. And I think that, you know, when people have less experience, the world is very black and white. And I do yes. think as we get older, we're more empathetic to people who maybe are struggling or you can see, oh, wait a second, decisions aren't easy and you do have to make choices and they're not always easy choices. And you're, you know, you're definitely not always going to get celebrated for them. Exactly. Yeah. Some people are not used to that exercise of putting themselves in the other person's shoes or yeah. being on the outside looking in and saying, hey, yeah, you know, I acted in this way and it's no surprise that the person I'm working with or working for is reacting in this way. Yeah. You know, makes yeah. sense. Empathy empathy is a very interesting thing. I, I saw somebody um, who was doing a, a talk on empathy and uh, I really think it's one of the most undervalued uh, qualities of leadership. Mm. And I don't think that uh, people teach it enough. I don't think people talk about it enough. And I think that uh, if, if empathy was a much more fundamental part of everything everybody does, uh, we would all have a much better, you know, world that we would all be living in for sure. <laughs> yes, preach. Yes. I, I was actually going to ask you about how you would describe your leadership and where you see the biggest opportunity for growth and development in yourself. Oh, I, I'm not a very good teacher. Um, I, I actually say that to my team all the time. I have a tendency to get easily frustrated and I'm just like, you know what, I'll just do it myself. Um, I'm because I'm a very hands on person and I'm mm. and I'm not I'm a, I'm a build a company. I don't know if I'm a run forever a company because I'd like mm -hmm. change and I'd like to build things. Um, it's, it's, it, I hope uh, that people feel that I'm an empathetic uh, leader. I think it's something that I strive to be and that I strive to do. Um, I think it's very difficult. I have to say, uh, being a, a female leader, I do think so there's very specific challenges being a woman and, and being a leader. Because mm. I definitely think that the qualities one needs to be in business, which is hard and making difficult decisions and having the hard conversations and, uh, you know, uh, negotiating very hard with people and standing up for your staff and all of those things. When people see them, they express themselves also in all of those very cliche negative ways that people have, which mm. is, you know, aggressive, abrasive, and all of those other things. Um, and I think that uh, from the outside, when people haven't directly worked with me, oftentimes they think that I'm going to be really difficult to work with or that I'm going to mm. be really challenging or I'm not going to be very collaborative. And I've had so many people come to me after actually directly working with me and going, you are not what I expected as far <laughs> as actually working with you. And I always take that as a, as a huge compliment, but also a huge challenge because I understand that I have a very intense personality and uh, it's, 
you know, I always think, God, I got to find a way to tone it down. I just don't know how to. <laughs> Maybe that's my leader. <laughs> my daughter says that because I always tell her she's very intense and she's like, I'm very intense. You're very intense. I'm like, that's we're, hilarious. We're out intensing each other. That's that's funny. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for sharing. No, that's that's great. And it, it's good to reflect on where you have those opportunities to grow and develop. So, yeah, that's I think I think um, I think that uh, the anybody who thinks that leadership is easy and that there's not a place to grow, we all can always get better. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I, I find the hardest thing about running a company is the people aspect of it. It really mm. is hard. It's really difficult. Mm. You know, I can imagine, I can absolutely imagine, especially building a diverse team. That just means you have to get very good at being able to manage a diverse team. Yeah. Everyone reacts in different ways to different things and different styles. I do want to move on to question four, sure. which is, can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? Um, Oh, so many difficult moments. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I feel like you've probably seen one or two. Yeah. Every, every week is a difficult moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think definitely, um, public failure is something that, uh, was very difficult. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I had that tech startup that I mentioned to you and I, I did it for five or six years. I took friends and family, um, uh, money. I think we raised about a half a million dollars. Um, I wow. definitely put in a huge amount of my own money to do it. And uh, it basically turned any computer into a web server. Uh, so it allowed people to directly publish from, to the internet from any device. Um, oh. So it didn't have to go to a server. You didn't have to upload anything anywhere. You were uploading it directly to the cloud. And we really struggled to figure out a product for a solution. Like we had this solution and it was a tech solution and it was this interesting, fascinating thing. Um, but the on-off internet, like what would people use that for who weren't, you know, using it for untoward things. We could figure right. out a lot of untoward things that people right, would want right. to use it for, but um, <laughs> we didn't want to participate in that. So Fair. Um, what we ended up doing was a, almost like a Dropbox uh, before Dropbox launched. And uh, ultimately, we didn't get funding. Uh, it was very difficult. I mean, we're in Canada. It's a risk adverse. People were telling me it's not a problem to be solved. And I think at that time, especially VCs looked to have people who looked like them be mm -hmm. the kind of people that they would fund. So my whole thing was I used to joke that I tried to seem like I was their daughter so that they could like, you know, because they would never see themselves in me. So maybe I could seem like their daughter right. or you know, something else like That's that. That's funny. <laughs> that was my big attempt. Um, and I don't think being too female uh, co-founders is why we failed. Mm. I think that there were a lot of things that uh, we did wrong. I don't think we, you know, got to market fast enough. I don't think we focused enough and focus is like my number one thing when I talk to people about business. Um, everybody thinks that they are going to focus. And then as soon as you start talking to them, they're like, and it could be this and it could be this and let's also do this and this and this. They're like, um, that's not focus. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not focus. Um, but when it failed, I mean, it was, it was public and it was hard and I'd never failed so disastrously. I'd never failed so publicly. We had some family members who were very upset over the money that they had lost, even though I felt we had been very transparent on, you know, what the investment and that they would probably lose it and all the rest of it. And they, you know, could only do it if they could afford to fail right. and all of that. And, uh, it was, it was so stressful to end it even though I probably knew six months before we ended it, like, when do you, when do you actually make the call? When do you make the decision and how do you move on? Um, 
it was it was very hard. It was just it was just it felt humiliating that failure. So I always see. I think I actually have a blog old blog post where I talk about failure sucks and failure is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, in response to all these people who are like, fail fast, you know, fail failure is so important. It's like, yes, failure is so important, but it sucks, mm-hmm. and uh, nobody should strive for failure. And uh, I don't ever want to embrace failure. I hate failure. I think it's good to um, learn from your mistakes for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it was it was hard personally and professionally for sure. How did you bounce back from that failure? Um, well, I did. That was when I learned to love whiskey. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, I, I think you just, I think it's, you just put, I, I saw one of your podcasts was just put one foot in front of the other. I think that, <laughs> I think that that's very good advice. You just continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just try to get that forward momentum and then you do other things. I will say after, after doing that startup, there were so many things. I'm not a very public person. So I'm around, a, marketing is filled with people who are personal brands. Uh, there are so many personal brands. Everybody's written a book and then they go on the speaking tour and everybody's got a headshot and their own website and they do their little TED talks and whatever that is that they do. And I, I've never, I love talking to people about the things I'm passionate about and I love having conversations. I love right. being on panels um, because I'm like, there's so many great ideas and like, I want to, you know, argue with the people I don't agree with. And I want to share with the people who feel I have something to say and I want right. to learn something, but I've never been about myself as a personal brand. I'm not an industry person. You know, I don't think anybody would. I I don't think like if, if you ever saw most of those magazines or whatever, when they're reaching out for people to do award shows or they're reaching out for people on panels and all the rest of it, nobody ever talks to me. Nobody ever emails me. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because I'm not a personal brand. I don't put myself out there as a personal brand. I guess so. But that doesn't mean you're, you're not a great thought leader. Yeah, but that's not the way our industry works, right? People, there are people who are full-time thought leaders. That's their job in their companies, right? They're full-time, full-time thought leaders. So I, I just, that just means their content is too accessible. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, I stopped blogging because I just kept seeing my content in other people's books or blog posts or whatever. And, you know, and these, these would often be the people who say, you know, we should all share. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you're telling everybody to share because you're not giving credit. Like, I'm sure your dad would complain about from academia, so Mm -hmm. many people stealing people's, you know, ideas from academia, never, ever giving attribution. Um, So anyway, but with my startup, I still remember the first time that I actually commented on a blog was Fred Wilson's blog, AVC, Mm. which I became a very active member of. And I even went down to New York and met a lot of the other people who were participating on the blog. And I remember the first time I ever made a comment, it like took me forever to write it. And it was really convoluted. I I think I was trying to sound smart or something. And, (laughs) and, I remember like closing my eyes to like actually publish it and it just felt so weird and so public. And it was after, after that, that I started blogging because I felt like I needed to put myself out there because you have to, as a business person, you have to actually, you have to make the uncomfortable calls. You have to say, Hey, you know, I, I really want to work with you or I really want to do this. You put yourself at a personal risk 
every day and all the time. Yep. And uh, ego can have nothing to do with it. You really have to put whatever ego you have aside. And I think for someone, I, I, I'm, I found it really hard. I thought it, it was just, oh, I don't want to ask things of people. I'm so embarrassed. I, I have nothing really to say. And, you know, in that context, and I don't want to be a, you know, person who's out there and then right. people are going to comment negatively towards me. And just the more you do it, the, the easier, easier it gets, gets. Yep. the easier it gets. <laughs> so with failure and humiliation, the easier it gets. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like anything. It's just it doesn't it doesn't phase me as much as it used to. Not mm -hmm. to say if I did a spectacular fail, it wouldn't be very upsetting. I would just get over it faster. It's true. And especially if you have a quote unquote type A or an achiever type of personality or you've always been used to doing really well at things, failure feels uh, even harder than yeah. it might be, uh, especially if you, know, you are similar to me and you're very hard on yourself when stuff happens, then it just it feels like it's 10 times worse than it actually is. Yeah. And I think that at, at different points in time and, and you know, maybe this I, do, I don't know if this is gender based, but uh, my what my work and how I'm perceived in my work is so wrapped up or was at some point in time in my self-esteem, like it mm. was my self-esteem and it were, you know, very similar. I grew up in a home where there were zero expectations of girls um, and there were probably less expectations of me. I was one of those people where you're never going to be successful. You know, it, I, my father was a very emotionally abusive human. Uh, you know, he really tried in his older age, but, you know, he he um, I, probably was the equivalent of a verbal troll, uh, you know, and would say things to you as a child that, you know, nobody should say to kids. So for me, it was like, I think I always had that sort of like, I'm going to prove myself. You know, some people shrink mm -hmm. under that kind of circumstance and end up with, you know, sort of certain types of mental health issues, I was like the sort Opposite. of screw you. I'm going to, yeah. you know, you have no expectations. Well, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be successful and I'm going to do things with my life and all the rest of it. I think over time. And as I get older, I, I think that where my meditation is with myself, because I'm the type A personality, it's actually um, not having that definition of success for myself and actually giving myself permission. Like when I left McLaren, which was an ad agency where I had a VP title and I went in from a very junior to a very senior position, when I was a consultant and I no longer worked there, I no longer had a title. People didn't return my calls. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you are very important because you can do things and get things for people and then you're not. Um, so it's made me number one, very empathetic when people lose their jobs. And I've always tried to help out different people and meet with anybody who calls me. And I usually reply to email when I get it and all that sort of stuff, except for Salesforce sales emails, which I never reply to. Um, <laughs> but I think that, uh, not having that uh, that piece where success is wrapped up in whether or not my business is successful, that is a journey that I continue to be on as a as a mm -hmm. as a person. As I say to my daughter, there's no there here. So, you know, I try to say it to myself as well. And the irony is is when you're not so wrapped up and obsessed with that definition of success being that of your business obviously there's certain things that you need to be aware of that's when your business can really flourish when you're not almost choking it out uh, curious what your definition of success is now oh well uh, it, it's always about doing things you're passionate about creative and and uh 
working with a great group of people, you know, it, it's, it's so dumb. It's, it's the simple things, you know, I, um, I, I worked, I, I started this sort of nonprofit, uh, on ovarian cancer with a woman named Alana Waldman, who, uh, had uh, BRCA, the Jewish cancer gene. Mm. And, uh, I did something called it's time to shout, which was, uh, from ovarian cancer and, and Alana would always say, you know, looking back on her life, because she knew she had very little time, she said, it's not, it's not the big things. It's all the small things. And I do believe that. I believe it is those small things. Uh, my connection to nature is something that's very important to me. And that feeling like that's successful. Um, I, I think having a really successful company doesn't feel real or successful to me. I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's not that I want an unsuccessful company, but that doesn't feel as important as by having this successful company, I've gotten to help X people to do stuff. I get to work with Swim Drink Fish, which is this incredible environmental organization that I feel very passionate about. I got to uh, do uh, a campaign called We Do Not Consent, which was helping uh, the indigenous, the Inuit people uh, in a campaign with Greenpeace. So for me, it's about what it enables. It's mm -hmm. not the success of the company itself. And anytime I think about, you know, uh, not doing something like gravity that enables me to do all those other things, I'm like, oh God, how am I going to do those other things? Like, uh, they're, they are the success. Um, and, uh, you know, again, your kids, your family, your friends, that stuff is all where the success happens as ridiculous and cliche as it sounds. The rest of it is literally irrelevant. I don't know how to explain to people with the exception of always making sure you can pay your bills. That mm -hmm. There's never anything irrelevant about food on the table, a roof right. over your head and the bottom of the, the pyramid of needs. Yes. But as you go up that pyramid of needs and you are in a comfortable situation where you can actually buy whatever it is you need to buy. That's why I don't, you know, Sam and I, like, I just, I'm like, so you get this car to this car to this car to this car, you would be fine with a bike, just so you know. <laughs> I see all the strollers. I had a really crappy stroller. My daughter's great. I don't, yeah. you know, it was fine. I survived with my $200 stroller. Yeah, yeah. So. That's, it's funny that that's low end in comparison, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Quote, unquote. Oh, my God. They're, they're, they're like cars now, I know. the strollers. I don't it's understand ridiculous. the strollers and all the, the industry that's around it. So. That's fair. But I love what you just shared because it's an important reminder for our listeners, especially since I know many of you are hardworking, hustling women um, and men, uh, to think about why you're doing the things that you're doing. And at the end of the day, that reflection of what am I going to be most proud of? Yeah. And what impact am I making in this world? Yeah. Am I just churning the gears to perhaps run up to the next title? Or am I doing something that helps me create a better existence world, environment, et cetera, for those around me and myself. Yeah, I loved, I loved, so my, the Oscars are always my thing. I love the Oscars. <laughs> um, and uh, one day I'd like to get to the Oscars. If anybody has tickets to the Oscars, I've always wanted to go. Um, but Lady Gaga- your plus one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the plus one. Uh, a friend of mine went to the Grammys. I was so excited this year. I got to watch her through Instagram, go to the Grammys. Um, 
but when I, you know, Lady Gaga and one of my favorite things uh, in A Star is Born is just, you know, have something to say, you know, uh, like, what is it that you have to say? And I think that, you know, that idea of self-expression and that idea of creativity, that idea of we all have something to say, what is our imprint? What is our impact? What is it that we want to say? I think that there's something and, and maybe it's because I write and, and I think through that lens of, you know, having something to say. But I think that that's so much more important than what you accumulate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe it's just the environmental me. Um, uh, but again, it's a place of privilege. But once you have the bottom, because I've, I've had way more than the bottom. And I grew up in a neighborhood where lots of people had way more than the bottom. And uh, there were a lot of extraordinarily unhappy people there. Exactly. Dollars don't buy you happiness. That's for sure. Okay. I'm sounding like a heart, like a Hallmark card, <laughs> a bad Hallmark card. Well, you know, I, the weird, the weird thing is that I think in the entrepreneurship world and in the, the sort of startup world, a lot of the conversations are about money. Like that's all, you know, even right. when I was pitching my startup and I'd say, well, we're going to make this much money. And they're like, well, why not $5 billion? And <laughs> so it, it's very hard because you can very easily get caught up in that being the only conversation. Yep. And so it's the balance to try to find another way to find purpose for yourself is very important because, you know, there's a reason why so many CEOs are sociopaths. There's a lot of things in the CEO job that you have to numb yourself to um, from the perspective of, you know, it's like, you know, neural um, neurosurgeons, if 50 to 70% of your patients are going to die, that's part of the reasons why they're not the most human people, because if they're connecting to every one of their patients, 70, 50 to 70% of them are going to die. Yeah, you know, I do think as a CEO, you have to make so many hard decisions, you have to have so much anxiety and so much pressure that you start to block out that empathetic side of yourself. And I think you always have to remind yourself of about those other pieces as cliche as they may be because it's very easy to go into the place of socio like a socio into the abyss into the abyss into yeah. the dark abyss yeah yeah exactly of the other cliche of being <laughs> you know not caring of CEOs etc exactly and thankfully we're not that <laughs> well hopefully not anyway <laughs> trying not to be true well on that note question five is who or what inspires you the most um, you know, for me, again, um, people who have done things that are creative, anybody who makes a living creatively inspires me because I think that they've made a choice. They've sacrificed a lot. Um, and I think sacrificing yourself for art in a world that absolutely does not appreciate it and actually putting yourself so, uh, emotionally vulnerably, uh, out into the world. I mean, I, I, I work with creative people all the time. I just think it must be the hardest job in the world to, uh, even though it's commercial arts, to literally be putting your creative work uh, in front of people and saying, what do you think? And getting all these various opinions about your creative work. I think that that's probably some of the hardest, hardest jobs that are out there. Um, it's vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable experience. Yeah. yeah. Oh, are, for sure. Are there any specific people or examples that come to mind for you? Um, 
You know, I don't know. I, I, I so often see so many people that I admire and that I see, and some people are really famous, like Michelle Obama and mm -hmm. all of those incredible cliches that, you know, I, Michelle Obama would laugh that she's a cliche, but you know, <laughs> um, uh, but I think that, uh, I think that, you know, Honestly, like I still remember watching um, Whoopi Goldberg had a one woman show um, where she was talking about her long, luxurious blonde hair. And she played a little black girl who wanted to have long, luxurious blonde hair. I remember Whoopi's show when I saw it having so much impact on me because it was funny and charming and it made me think differently about some things that I don't think I had ever thought about in a way that I had never thought about. I think about someone like Ellen DeGeneres. I had uh, made I had made my 10-year-old son, I think he was probably eight at the time, watch her coming out uh, interview with Oprah Winfrey mm -hmm. because I wanted him to understand how hard it is when people don't fit in and when people can't be who they are and tell their story. And I don't know if you've ever seen that interview. Not yet. It's, it's so raw. It was when then she came out on the Ellen show and then people were asking, why did you come out? And like, why was it important to you? I mean, she was like, it was, it was like such an incredible, very raw, yeah, very raw. Um, I think about, um, uh, Suzanne Summers, uh, who was probably the first woman actress who ever fought for pay equity and lost and was blackballed and turned into a phenomenal entrepreneur and, uh, is a nice human, uh, by the way. Um, <laughs> so I think about people like her. So it, it's, it's, you know, people big and small. Uh, I think about um, uh, people who have tried to do things that, um, you know, locally that, you know, um, that whenever I have someone who, you know, I had a, a young woman who came in and, and did an interview and she was an immigrant woman. I think she was from Saudi Arabia and her English wasn't great and she was shaking uh, through the interview. And I, I told her, I gave her a couple books and I told her, uh, to come back in a couple weeks. And I made someone go in and like talk to her for about an hour before I came in and interviewed her. And I just thought she was so brave. There's no way I would have come back to that interview. There's no mm -hmm. way I would have come back, you know? So I just, I think that there's so many people I admire. There's so many people who do courageous things all the time where you look and you go, oh, I wish I had done that. Or, you know, oh, look, that's the most amazing thing. Um, uh, yeah, so many people, so many people, writers, so many writers, so so many writers, Tim Winton, you know, uh, uh, I just, I love writers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's another, another iteration of creative. And I think yeah. to your point, anytime you're creating, creating something that is creative, uh, you are, you are literally putting out a piece of yourself. You're putting your heart, you're putting your brain, you're putting your essence out on your sleeve, arm and beyond for public critique, because that's, the default. You yeah. put something out there, it's going to be the subject of everyone's opinion. Yeah. And, and you know, and I think that there's, there's, uh, you know, I've, I've had so many mentors in my life from my own mother who would be, I would be remiss if I did not mention her and she would mention it to me later. What about me? Um, <laughs> hi mom. Hi mom. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think about it even from a work perspective. One of the first women I worked with was a very senior woman in the digital side at General Motors. And, uh, one of the first, um, uh, 
one of the, I guess the second or third review that I had had at uh, McLaren, I had two people who shall remain nameless, both very senior interviewing me. And they said uh, that uh, I was intimidating to clients and uh, that I needed to soften my approach. Oh, of course. And uh, <laughs> I literally said to them that uh, that I thought that that was uh extremely sexist, but I understood what they were saying and that I will, I, I was actually very sarcastic. And I said, I'll learn to flip my hair more often when I'm in the meetings with that <laughs> person. And, uh, <laughs> I can't believe you actually said that. Yeah. Wow. Well, see, this is why I was unmanageable at the previous That's job <laughs> that I had been fired from. No, I love that. That's amazing. Uh, um, and I literally, the two of them literally got like physically moved and their backs both got out. Oh, we don't, we don't think this has anything to do with gender. I don't think this is, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. And I said, I said, relax. I said, I understand what you're saying. It's fine. I will do my best to, uh, you know, be be less uh, smart with that person. The funny thing is that I had mentioned that to Jeannie because it was one of her staff who reported up into her who had the issue. And uh, Jeannie said to me, she looked at me and, you know, her eyes started squinting. And she said, Lee, I will tell you something. You've never intimidated me. And I said, thank you, Jeannie. So, you know, this was, uh, so it's like people like that who like moved up into organizations that were extremely male, male dominated, who were extremely successful and who were very kind in their mentorship and their, uh, advice to me as I grew up in my career, having, uh, no filter, obviously as I, <laughs> as I don't and, and really helping me navigate, uh, what, is generally has been a very male-dominated world, which is uh, the corporate business world in Canada. Hmm. That's so interesting. I, I'm just imagining if I were in your shoes in that interview and that's what went down. It's like, man, imagine imagine if you were a dude. They would not be saying that exact same thing. Absolutely, Absolutely not. Absolutely not be saying it, that. It, do those gender dynamics still come up being a woman who is a CEO in these types of meetings, probably still in a pretty male dominated industry. Oh, and you know, I world. will say it's changing. I will say, you know, mm -hmm. I was just actually, um, I went out for coffee uh, with a friend of mine, Nyla Ahmad, who's actually in charge of in inclusion and diversity at Rogers. Mm -hmm. um, and she's making incredible strides. Um, but I will say, you know, thinking back on it now, like, Eight years ago, things were things were far different. I remember one of the first meetings my um, uh, my ex business partner and I went to um, was with an agency that wanted to buy us, and we were like one year old. Like we were barely we were barely a company, and they were like wanting to meet, and they wanted a succession plan and all the rest of it. And this this gentleman was sitting, and Jordan and I were on the other side of the table, and. He literally did not look at me once. And then Jordan, you know, was he was asking Jordan all about him. And Jordan was like, you know, talking very, Jordan's very eloquent. And he was just going on about his own career and the amazing things he's done. Da, da, da. Mm. And then at some point in the context of a conversation, I had said like literally one thing about something I had done. And he's like, you know, I don't think it's all about you. I don't know, you know, he, it was very, it was a very... <laughs> It was very weird. Aww. And it was funny because Jordan after that, and Jordan would still say this today, 
he said to me, wasn't that that was the best meeting and he was so great and, you know, wouldn't you want to work with them and look what they're offering us? And I looked at Jordan and I said, Jordan, honestly, if you wanted to go do that, I would totally understand and you're welcome to do that. That man did not look in my eyes once. He was so dismissive to me. I can't even tell you. And it was funny because I think that Jordan had a much more awareness after that about the dynamic and was always very um, clear to make sure that people were looking at me and just not at him. People always assumed that they were going to be negotiating with Jordan. Hmm. People never negotiated with Jordan. I I ran the finances of our business. I did the operations side of our business. Jordan was more uh, a senior strategy uh, lead on a lot of our clients. Right. Um, they made a lot of assumptions uh, about that. So it was kind of funny for Jordan and I. We um, we just tried to use it to our advantage. You know, it was like, oh, uh, you know, uh, you know what? You're you should go to that meeting. You're the boy. Why should go to that <laughs> meeting? You know, um, and uh, that was good. But you know, Jordan's gone off to do other things now, and I think that that was a really scary thing for me thinking about being a woman CEO and a woman run company. And it was funny because one of the, this is, this is recent. And in January, you know, um, we got contacted by Nike, uh, in Portland wow. who actually contacted us because we were a woman run agency and we pitched for a project that was part of the just do it campaign that just launched with Serena, the next iteration of it. Right. We're doing just one small part. We were creating a bunch of white spaces based on insights and culture all around, uh, young women, uh, teen women, and uh, their role in culture and their role in sports and all of that sort of stuff and creating a bunch of white space and, and some creative platforms for them. Cool. Um, and we won it. And I was just like, wow, like maybe we're going into a time where being a woman is an advantage and not a disadvantage for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't that be nice for a change? It would be very nice for a change. And I do see at least like the comment you made earlier, at least an awareness Mm-hmm. of that being important of, okay, what are the ideas? What are the perspectives? What What is the impact in the marketplace we could potentially make right. by bringing in a company that has that leadership that isn't what we've been doing for the past X number of years? Yeah. And, and I think that people don't really recognize that they've had an unconscious bias when you're going into these pitch situations where they immediately connect with certain types of people and all the rest of it mm-hmm. and to challenge themselves to really wonder, you know, well, what would happen if we worked with a sort of different kind of company with mm-hmm. different kinds of people who are going to bring different kinds of perspectives, whether that's someone like me or whether or not that's, you know, other diverse and inclusive kinds of companies that are out there um, that are doing very interesting and different types of things. Very so. cool. That's awesome. It's not just the lawyers and the head of HR that should be, you know, uh, at the senior level from a female leadership perspective. 100%. And in the past, that's all it ever was. 100%. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. And I know even LinkedIn as a company, that's something that they have been seeking to change over the past few years because it was their SVP and CEO, Jeff Weiner looking around saying, oh, our senior leadership team is is all people that look like us. This is not okay. And so they were one of the big tech companies that first tried to put their stake in the ground saying, we need to change this. And now other companies are starting to follow by example. It's a slow and steady process. I think I had a blog post, I'm trying to think, but six or seven years ago, where Mm -hmm. I actually um, started to look at uh, the various tech companies. Mm -hmm. And they had an abysmal, abysmal, 
abysmal percentage of women in senior leadership positions. Right. And you still see it in the startups now. You still see it. It's it's really abysmal. Yep. And uh, I had gotten in a bunch of arguments, uh, which were very uncomfortable, um, on that Fred Wilson's blog with actually, I think it was the guys from Discus. Uh, discuss actually um uh maybe it was them uh, I, just in case it wasn't i apologize um <laughs> uh where they were like well you know uh you know we have this woman and she does everything here and her job title was office manager and i said well i think you need to give her a promotion mm -hmm. if she's doing all those amazing things and she's integral to your company she should be a vp of something right you know and i wrote a blog post called change doesn't just happen and i do believe that i think you have to actively uh manage that and actively try to do something different mm -hmm. but the first step is as i said to a group of uh men at rogers who were many years ago when i was a consultant there and they were at the end of the table talking about you know oh we need to you know have more women and i you know i was just finished a meeting and i you know i said um um uh, sorry don't mean to interrupt guys uh it was you know uh, david purdy who was there and i was like uh just promote them yep. it's not that hard Lots of smart women you work with. I can tell you exactly who mm -hmm. they are and which ones you should promote. And mm -hmm. they just kind of looked at me like, oh, no, 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 we're just going to do a committee and we're going to you know, work uh, with that. You know, like they started writing their PowerPoints. <laughs> it's just funny. And you're like, why are you overthinking this? Yeah. So it was nice to hear that Nala's making significant change there now. Oh, that's great. Amazing. Yeah, there was one point I wanted to bring up about the unconscious bias, especially in meetings. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I caught myself doing as well is unconsciously, even with our body language, uh, we'll often, especially if you're in swivel chairs, we'll often kind of point ourselves towards whoever we think has the most authority in the room. Right. And exactly. And it's one of those things I caught myself doing. I'm like, no, 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 I need to stop doing that because I'd be in situations where everyone, yes, maybe one person was a manager and one person was a director or whatever, but everyone is equally important in this room, at least in the kind of meeting it is. Right. And that was just a small thing. I would see other people doing it too. Everyone would sort of point their chairs towards that one perceived you know, head honcho or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 I need to stop doing this. You know, it was amazing. <laughs> we we had this um, uh, a meeting where uh, there was a woman at uh, an, an insurance company and we were doing a pitch and she was a woman of color. And you just don't often see that in a, in a, in a, meeting and she was very impressive and it was a very impressive way that she had done the pitch and we had uh, one of our more junior employees uh, and she turned to her and said why do you like working here and I'd never seen it sounds weird I've never seen a client do that I've never seen a client turn to in a pitch turn to the most junior person and said why do you like it and then all of a sudden that person you know, was an active participant in the conversation. She was so nervous afterwards. Alisa was like, oh my God. And I didn't, and I said, Alisa, you were amazing because you were genuine and you spoke from the heart and it, she could tell you weren't coached and it was just what you thought. Right. Um, but yeah, you see stuff like that and, and women leaders, and then they're treating other people in the room as if they're equals. I, I, I really do believe we still are very much top-down culture in North America. Mm -hmm. And when you have senior leaders who uh, believe in that kind of philosophy, you can see them change the organizations that they're working with and create incredible environments in very short periods of time. It's always very impressive. And then you have someone else who comes in who is very hierarchical and very um, sort of nasty and uh, disrespectful. And then you see that culture permeate itself also very quickly, fear and all yep. the rest of it. So, yep. 
It's true. I've I've lived through both and I've lived through transitions being even in the same company through both in little segments of the business. It's 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 amazing the impact one incredible person can make. Absolutely. And vice versa. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Sadly. Moving forward to question six. What is the most adventurous thing you have ever done? Oh, I definitely think moving to Greece was a very, yeah. No, <laughs> and I, it's pretty ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it was ballsy, but it was just, it was, uh, it was scary and adventurous. And I mean, my daughter was born in Athens and uh, going back and forth between So the she, cultures. is she a, a, like a, she's a citizen of Greece of and Greece Canada. And yeah. Canada. Wow. I actually have her um, citizenship card. Uh, I think she might've lost it, but she was six weeks old and I was propping up her head at the uh, Canadian consulate in Athens <laughs> to get her, her Canadian passport. Aww. Yeah. She looked, she could have been anybody. She used that thing for so long. Like literally she could have <laughs> been anybody. Um, but yeah, I do. I definitely think like things like quitting a job and not having one, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm a particularly adventurous person uh, as, a, as a human. Um, so for me, it's the big risks that I've taken, like moving countries or quitting my job or starting a company or starting a new company or calling somebody or sending an email to somebody, I, as dumb as that sounds, uh, you know, writing a letter to somebody who I admire or something that moved me, uh, you know, putting myself out there to embarrass that where I could be publicly embarrassed uh, are always the things that are, you know, I, there's still me, there is a, a somewhere a video of me singing when I was 18 years old at uh, Camp Winnebago. Um, and uh, I was singing something from Jesus Christ Superstar because at that time. Great musical. Yeah, amazing, amazing musical. But I think I wanted to perform and uh, I um, I thought, you know, if I want to do performance, I should, I should be okay with doing this. <laughs> And uh, literally, I have the worst singing voice known to humankind. And I don't <laughs> think anybody but the first two rows could hear me because I was like so terrified Aww. and just whispering. So, it, you know, it's getting out of the things that make you feel safe and make you feel comfortable. To me, in my mind, that's adventure. I don't know if I've ever done anything, quote unquote, adventurous, you know. But the, the things you described are all equally adventurous as as a world, as a society, especially in North America. We need to be more self-expressed right. and more self-expressed face to face. And in some of the ways that you articulated, I mean, I've sent DMs to Michelle Obama to invite her on the podcast. Right. Whether she's going to reply, who knows? But right. the worst thing that happens is she doesn't or she happens to say, no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, very often the worst case for all of these risks that we take are really not too bad. Obviously, yeah. ones where there's finances involved, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, curious, when you made the move to Greece, mm -hmm. what did your family think? Um, What did my family think? You know, my family is a very odd family. So, uh, you know, I, I have something on Medium that I wrote um, about... Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're a cart that pulls in every direction, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're an incredibly, you know, my older brother lived in Southeast Asia, actually, he moved to Southeast Asia way before I moved to Greece. Oh, so wow. yeah, so he was living in Cambodia in 1990 
something. So like he broke those boundaries already. <laughs> he way broke those boundaries. He was in Angkor Wat with the UN with tanks, right? Wow. Like, you know, so before that and lived in Laos and and in Thailand and still goes back and forth his wife's Khmer. So um, and my sister also married somebody who was Greek. Um, I met Vasily through my sister's program in environmental studies. Oh. So I think my sister had already lived in Greece before I moved in Greece. So from I think I think for my family, it was like, whatever, someone else is going somewhere and yeah. doing something Old crazy. News Old by news. that point. Yeah. <laughs> I pr they probably thought I was a follower. Yeah, so, I was going to say another Greek guy moved to Greek. Yeah, another, <laughs> another Greek guy and, and all of that. So I, I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was uh, particularly, I think for my mom, it was just, oh, doesn't anybody want to live here and stay? Yeah. So I think it was just, I think it was just hard having her kids. I think she was very proud of the fact that her kids lived across the world. Right. But I think it was very hard. And you got to know back then, like it was hard. I mean, like to connect to the internet, I had a phone cord that went to the other, like in Greece, we all had uh, apartments on the same floor, like you were given an apartment. So mm -hmm. like Vasily's in my apartment, his sister's apartment, and then his parents' apartment. And only one of the phone lines had a clear enough phone line that you could connect to the internet and go for like back in the day right. and get email. And so I had this huge cord that went and you'd have to try like 20 times for it to connect, for it to actually download the email. It was a totally different world back then. Oh, absolutely. You're very isolated when you were there. It wasn't like here. Yeah. And it's not like how it is now where so much you have, now. yeah, so you know, much easier. in your pocket. Oh yeah. So much easier. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. We are at question seven, which is what do you attribute your success to? Oh, I, I it sounds challenging, but I really, I definitely think that notion that I had with my dad, I hate to say it, but it's that, you know, you're not going to get the better of me-ness of things. I think you need to find something that's going to um, be a driver for you. And that was always a driver for me. And mm. uh, it made me want to create success, whatever that success meant. And I think for a while it was probably a success on his terms. Um, so, you know, my dad was a doctor. So, you know, what would success mean if you were a Jewish doctor who cares mostly about your firstborn son, mm. doctor, lawyer, engineer, <laughs> accountant, you know, accountant. Yep. And I wasn't going to be any of those things. So uh, for me, it was, it it was about getting success in terms that mattered to my father, being able to pay for myself, being able to, you know, have nice things, uh, being, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think over time, that success evolved, as we already talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely think proving him wrong was a very important part at the start. And now I think it's just that uh, discipline of determination. Um, maybe that was the other thing that I really related to when Lady Gaga was saying that. It was just like uh, that grit and determination of not giving up until you do something really well. When I worked at the video store, I always, maybe it's competition. I always wanted to be like how many, I used to do it in my head. I was a swimmer. Mm -hmm. How many videos can I get through in the fastest period of time? how clean can I get this toilet? I'm going to be the best toilet cleaner. You know, mm -hmm. like I just, I was always that person who was always trying to do whatever I did the best. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is. I don't know if I was born that way. Uh, I would not suggest everybody in my family is exactly like that. They have different motivations, 
in, you know, nature, nurture, I'm not sure. Um, but you know, being the youngest, you're always trying to like, I can play, I can do it. Mm -hmm. You know, what about me guys? You mm -hmm. know? So I think that when you're always trying to participate with people who are older than you or getting more attention than you or all the rest of it, you find your way to, you know, take care of yourself. And I was very independent, very young. My parents got divorced and I, sort of really had to take care of myself when I was 14. Um, and uh, that probably more than anything else, it was like, okay, you know, I'm here, I'm taking care of myself and I need to make sure that, you know, I do things better and that it will be fine. Right. You know? Yeah. No, that resonates a lot with me, actually. Uh, I, I've, the way I've tried to articulate in words is that I'm inspired by mastery. And so the same kind of ideas, whatever I do, I want to do it the best. And right. then I want to move on to the next challenge. Right. You know, that whole get uncomfortable philosophy is what's the next thing that I can do and master and then move on to the next thing or grow it to the next thing. Yeah. So I, I totally hear you. Yeah. And I do think that I, I do think when you're, you know, I've always related to people who ended up being on their own and, you know, sort of had to struggle through that process. I think that that's something that you don't see as much anymore in general. But I do think that, um, you know, when you when you are on your own and when you have to fend for yourself, I think it just creates a certain drive to make sure that your path is set and that you can take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that just then creates this drive and then that gets wrapped up in your self-esteem and then it just sort of rolls the ball down the hill. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, you need to redefine that success for your, you know, you need to redefine the reason you're doing it at some point because the reasons I did it in my twenties and my thirties are totally different than in my forties and are absolutely different than, you know, I just turned 50 last year and, am the oldest person in my company, which terrifies me. Um, <laughs> I really am. Um, but I think that you redefine for yourself the reasons that you're doing it and how you create that success and how you create that drive. I think it's very different than, you know, maybe in the earlier years for sure. Makes sense. Did you ever end up telling your dad about that mentality of, hey, I set out to do all these things kind of to prove you wrong and even ask, hey, did this actually play out? for you and the way in which it motivated me? Uh, uh, not, not in those terms. I think when it came to my dad, uh, uh, I didn't trust him. So mm. I think at some point, like he was one of those people where I was like, always trying for so many years and trying to get his approval and trying to get his approval. And I think when I really sort of came into my own was when I decided I'm not going to try anymore. I actually don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> now, is it true that I didn't give a shit? Probably not. But I still remember uh, at some point my brother, uh, my younger brother, David, who I have a lot of challenges with, um, you know, after my father died and there was a lot of controversy as there sometimes is after someone dies, mm. you know, David had said to me, well, you know, you weren't in touch with dad as much and, you know, you only saw him here. And then I had made a decision at some point in my life that I was going to participate in my relationship with my father on my own terms. Mm -hmm. And that was a very important moment for me because I think I had always participated on his terms and trying to impress him and 
feeling obligated and all sorts of complex emotions when it came to our relationship. And I think at the point where I just said, actually, I'm okay with me. I don't need him to approve of me. Then even when he actually did express to me that I turned out better than other people, because that would be the expression my dad would make. And it was some version of that, you know, I didn't expect, I actually had an, an, an uncle of mine said the same thing, like, who would have thought you would have been so successful? And yep. uh, it was like, <laughs> it was like, well, first of all, they're defining success in a very specific way, uh -huh. because my brothers and sisters are very successful. Uh, all of us are in very different ways from each other. So I thought it was interesting that, you know, again, we're using that very singular definition. But I really think that when my dad said that, I literally, it had no impact on me. I was like, I don't even know what that means because that's not even the version of success that I have for myself. Mm -hmm. So it it gave me a certain freedom. And, you know, my friend Leslie talks a lot about having a freedom point. And I think that that's been more what I've been trying to do for myself in my 50s and beyond is have a freedom point, whether that's financial freedom to say no when I want to say no to a pitch or say no to whatever it is, because I don't feel obligated, fire a client, whatever it is I need to do, uh, only work with people who respect me and who I respect and, and that sort of thing. Um, and having a freedom point emotionally to say that those things that used to have such a huge impact on me aren't going to have an impact anymore. And I think that when you get into your fifties, making sure you have those freedom points becomes so important and I didn't know that was a thing in my 20s. I didn't know there was such a thing as a freedom point. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was the thing I should be striving to get. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I've, I've never actually heard of it coined freedom point before. But as you were sharing that, I'm nodding my head so much because I'm like, literally everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, this is this has been my experience living in this very sort of traditional Jewish family mm -hmm. type of construct of, yes, I want to impress my dad with my accomplishments. I care so much about what he thinks. And then as soon as I removed that me trying to make myself look good in his eyes, that's, you know, and being able to have a relationship on my own terms, in the words that you said, that's when I have been able to express myself more fully. I've been able to see more success in my life and relationships and work as a result. Yeah. It's funny how that happens. It's right? funny how that happens. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. And you know, our, our relationships with our families are, are very complex and mm -hmm. they're, and they're, and they're so uh, fundamental and important. And it's funny because in business that that's not really something you talk about at all. It's not something that, you know, it's, it's sort of like you end up with this sort of different lives and you have to create a public persona to some extent, which, you know, I think social media and, and hopefully over time will things will the barriers for that will break down. I agree. And and that's where we've had previous interesting conversations with quote unquote social media influencers mm -hmm. uh, about that fabrication of your life versus what's real. Um and it's an interesting segue because it seems like a big motto for gravity is everything is personal. Mm -hmm. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about what well, that first means? First of all, everybody says I take everything personally, which oh. is a hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. Um, uh, yeah, I think the whole idea of personal. I mean, we we had that everything is personal. I guess eight or nine years ago, and it's funny more people are talking about it now today, hmm. um, uh, for sure. But the idea that media and data and the idea of um, Peter had 
something called human or the network brand that he created. Um, and it was a process that we worked back and forth to create brands a really long time ago, like 15, 20 years ago. And he had been talking about, um, he had gone to a conference, um, Magazines Canada, I think it was. And he was talking about how um, brands need to become more human because all of a sudden we're, we're speaking in brands and all these different channels. And you have to bring a different personality to different um, scenarios. So if you're Walt Disney, or you're the Disney company, obviously you can have that very childlike and exciting. But if somebody's child dies in your pool in one of the Walt Disney things, you still need to be that brand and you still need to be an ambassador for that brand, but you need to have a completely separate tone of voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, me in my business world versus me when I'm talking to my kids, I'm still essentially me, but the way that I speak is different mm -hmm. in those, you know, two circumstances. So as media becomes more personal and as we need to create empathy in technology, a friend of mine works for Google. He's very obsessed with empathy in technology. And I gave him a bunch of articles about emotive networks that were from a long time ago. Mm. Um, we need to actually build empathy into technology um, because, you know, it's funny Somebody was just telling me there's a new book that's coming out about the fact that male programmers have programmed all of the voice response systems. And it's one of the reasons women have so much trouble using Siri and Alexa mm. and all of those sorts of things. And uh, after I heard that, I've started using a fake deep voice with Siri you would be amazed at how Siri can understand me now. Oh, Siri great. actually makes the phone calls that I want Siri great. to make and that sort of thing. Um, oh. So that idea of technology being personal and empathy in technology and media being personal and we want in marketing, uh, things need to be relevant. And there's a whole generation there where if the communications isn't personal, they're like, it's irrelevant to me. Right. So mass marketing will be going away uh, over time. And we will expect that communication to speak to us as individuals and be able to understand that we just did X, Y, and Z over here. And that impacts this over here, mm -hmm. not in a creepy way, but in an empathetic way. Mm. Um, so uh, for me, the, everything is personal, has everything to do with as me as an individual, it has to do with the fact that I believe in responsible capitalism and it's not enough to say it's just business and then, you know, I don't care about you as a human. And then the idea of the media, data, technology, marketing, the future of marketing, everything is personal. Right. No, thanks for clarifying that. I mean, when I was doing a bit of research on the company, I was even noticing the B2I instead of B2C, like right. business, business to, to customer, individual. business to individual. Exactly. Yeah. Which is great because you are redefining, redefining that language that we typically see as just B2C. And you're right. It, it is moving in that very direction and it is starting to pair very nicely or cribbly with AI. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm seeing more and more things coming out about all of the biases that we reflect as a society, or at least I can only speak to North American society, playing out in AI, which is a scary thing. Like, as an example, the self-driving cars that are running over more black people than white people, as an example. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Along with all the other things. You know, it's interesting. When I was an environmental planner, um, one of the things that I did for the European Union was I actually uh, evaluated the implementation of the uh, Directive on Environmental Impact Assessment in the member state in Greece. Hmm. 
I dropped out of math in grade 11. Miss Skolnick, terrible teacher at York Mills Collegiate. <laughs> awful woman. Anybody who went to York Mills is like, awful woman. Um, it's funny how that happens. Yeah, it's like funny really how that happens. Bad and, yet, teachers. and yet I run the finances of my company. Isn't that a terrifying thought? Um, but anyway, so one of the things that I used to do is I, I created an assessment methodology and I actually deconstructed these environmental impact assessments. So what do environmental impact assessments do? What they do is they create mathematical models to quantify things. And people are like, ah, you know, math is one of the greatest manipulative sciences out there in the world. So my easiest example is you would have a small village that was going to be putting in a um, high-end uh, tourist village, and they would use as the basis of their waste calculation what the village before the rich people all got their vacationing used as their average waste. So inherently, what? yes. So they just use, they said, well, you know, in the village right now, everybody produces one pound of garbage. So yeah. when this new thing comes in, one pound times an extra 1,000 people equals, we just yeah. need this kind of waste treatment plant. Right. Okay. Inherent in all of those systems and behind the math is bias. Mm -hmm. Behind all of that is bias. And we as a society don't take the time to actually deconstruct that, understand that, and build different systems. It's one of the reasons why, and I think actually I must have an article on my blog about this, but what if UX and the internet was built by women and not by men? So everything from the interfaces that we have, from the uh, algorithms that we're using, it's all built on a certain construct with a certain bias, with you know, certain things. And I think the good wife had some great episodes, by the way, when they had that search engine talking about yep. that. Um, there was a few really great episodes uh, doing that sort of thing. Um, so I think that the need for us to actually understand how those systems it's not only what they're showing us, it's what they're not choosing to show us. Mm. Uh, personalization is about what becomes personal, but it also becomes what they decide to show you. And we can see that with Facebook and the data and the algorithms. So we're burgeoning in this new ethical world, in this new sort of technological world. And I think that the technology is moving faster than the people who are, you know, able to legislate, regulate and figure out the things that are happening that we need to protect ourselves against. Yeah, it's like equal parts exciting and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people are talking about the fear of media now. I have a blog post from 10 years ago, I think, where I said, I'm worried about newspapers going away. And uh, it was all about in the UK, uh, people being able to use algorithms to actually create fake news, which right. we know now is a big thing, thing. Mm -hmm. but it's always been there to see. Uh, we have chosen to ignore it for a variety of our own personal reasons. And it's funny, my friend David Bastido um, and I, and he's very into data, we were talking about from an election perspective, we wanted to create a real Twitter um, that was an Ontario poly or a Canada poly where people had to verify with ID that they mm -hmm. were actually the Twitter account that they were to actually have a completely separate universe that would have a verified Twitter conversation. Because mm -hmm. we didn't want to stop the conversations. We just wanted them to be honest and true. We don't want, we didn't want the Russian bots. And we were talking about that five and six years ago. We just never got around to doing it. It seems like this is a common theme through a conversation. It seems mm -hmm. like you're always ahead of the curve. 
Oh, I don't know about I don't I don't know about that. I think as I said to I you I don't know, it's come up like four or five times already, it seems like, which is pretty cool. I well, you know what? I think the thing is though, that there's so many people like I'm getting that information from other people who sure. are ahead of the curve, like in truth. Mm. Um, and so it's it's about taking those pieces of information and all of those patterns and then seeing and you know it's interesting because your 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 father is one of those people who's always been ahead of the curve and and had seen things and working with Derek Tkarikoff people like him have have seen things if you go to the MIT Media Lab and looking at the kinds of things that they're creating and that they're doing I was just talking to somebody we're talking about digital fabrics and digital yep. paper like there are incredible things happening right now um, um, I'm very interested in um, uh, virtual reality because I'm very interested in the creative arts and I'm wondering what's going to happen in virtual reality yeah. and I feel like I feel like marketing's boring. We all know what everybody's trying to do there. Um, you know, we're all trying to get as much data as humanly possible to sell people more crap. So my question is, where are the real innovations going to come? Where are the things where experiences or how somebody's going to experience um, uh, product or service experience is going to be completely different. So I don't know if I'll ever be daring enough at the age of 50 to actually um, start a company like that because the other companies I'm doing aren't quite like that. Um, but I'm interested to watch and see where it's going for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. It seems like that's the next wave of stuff, the next patterns that are emerging. Oh, absolutely. I think wearable technologies and, and, uh, and I think that, uh, I, I bought off Kickstarter. We haven't actually set it up, but it's a huge glass prism of a 3d model. Um, and it's without glasses. So it's mm. actually, it looks like, um, when you, when you see the demonstrations online it looks like you know that game the characters in star wars that were on the game in the millennium falcon oh right it right, looks right. like that but they're in a glass box so wow. they haven't quite made it so that there's no glass box but it sure. looks exactly like that i'm like what could we do with that and how could we use you know so i'm like oh could we do something like that for marketing like what could we do with it so we're gonna get around to it we just haven't been able to do anything with it but yeah. that kind of stuff really it's it's exciting and fun to think about creative things that you can do with technology that have never been done before Absolutely. No, that stuff is really, really exciting. Even some of the wearables that help make certain things easier and better, like the um, headbands for meditation, yeah. you know, those types of things. It's Nike just got, they just launched a pair of running shoes that tie themselves. My God. Oh, yeah. I saw I, that. I'm like, why am I teaching my son to tie his shoes? <laughs> what an irrelevant, what an irrelevant <laughs> skill set right? that I've like spent a bunch of time making sure he knows how to do. Completely irrelevant skill it's set. It's true. Well, it's even like the, the self-parking cars. Mm. I mean, you know, parallel parking, the bane of most people's existence Don't for many years. Don't even need it. Why right? are we learning that? Not even <laughs> No problem. Oh my gosh. It's a whole thing. Okie dokie. Let's move to question eight, which is what item or items could you never live without? Oh, you know what? I do tend to take my books with me everywhere. Now, obviously I can live without them, but in all, like in my place in Toronto and my place up north, our library, I love my library. My library is my life. My life is my library. My books, I love physical books. Um, and uh, I, I have a couple of poetry books that have come with me forever. My eldest brother gave me a book of Arthur Rimbaud's poetry when I was 14 years old, and it kind of like changed my life. I know that sounds really 
I don't know what that sounds, but, uh, and I, I always said, if I like, if there was a fire and you had to grab something, that book, because it came with me all the different places that I moved and I lived and I felt very lonely. And, you know, that book was, I, I loved, I loved his writing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, you know, other than the human people in my life, I would be remiss and everybody in my family would say I was a liar if I didn't say my phone because I sleep with it. <laughs> I'm on it all the time. We, I try not to use it during dinner, but I mean, the truth is it's, you know, we always talk about, you know, digital technology as, as biology and it's mm -hmm. part of my arm. There's no question I am obsessed with my mobile device. Marshall McLuhan, very Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> Super Marshall McLuhan. I believe, I believe that technology has become biology was the project that I worked with your dad and Derek on. Like that was early days just talking about what would that mean when technology becomes biology. But I mean, it's true. I, I use it for everything. It's my memory. Mm -hmm. It's my entertainment. It's my connection. It's my communication. Um, and uh, I think it's like pretty incredible that this thing exists and can carry around. I've, I'm, I'm missing my old 386 laptop. Somebody said to me that they could fix it because it had just broken, like, and uh, they took it and then they haven't brought it back. And I can't remember because I probably, it's not me, it's menopause. Uh, I can't remember <laughs> who the hell I gave it to. But like, no. if I think about it, I, I know I, up until six months ago, and it's a brick and it weighs 400 pounds. And oh. I just think about that. I had that uh, computer when I was 19 years old and I was one of the rare people who would have had a laptop. And it was mostly because my brother did the original computer programming for Telepersonal. He was a programmer back in the day. Wow. Um, and to just see how quickly in that progression, when I go through all those old documentations about internet and email and then to see what we can do now with those devices. And literally at the beginning of my career, I was explaining to people what the internet was. And I had a guy who was at McLaren's retail group who said to me, Ech, it's a fad. <laughs> it's a fad. This was 1998. Wow. Right. Ugh, it's a fad, you know, oh and just to just to see that progression. Yeah, no, I probably couldn't live without my uh, Without my device, and without it my phone. wasn't even that long ago. Uh, curious, do you have any policies in your household about devices or at the dinner table or God things damn like it, that? We try. Uh, <laughs> we try. Yes, we we do a traditional eating together. My my husband's retired. He's an incredible cook. We eat dinner every night together when we're at the table, and we don't have devices mm. at the table. Period. Full stop. End of story. It's very hard to control uh, how long Sam is on devices. And we learned that very early on. Now, first of all, he was probably one of the first children to be on an iPad because uh, Peter went down to New York and uh, stood in line and got the first generation iPad, which, by the way, like still works and just has a couple dents in it. That thing is like impenetrable. Like you could throw that across the room and nothing would happen to I it. I know mine too. It's the most still incredible going. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Sam was 18 months when he got that iPad. Wow. And uh, when Sam was two, two and a half, we had a TV with Netflix on it and Sam kept pushing on the TV and saying, Netflix is broken. Netflix is broken. <laughs> so it, what we learned early on when we started making rules with Sam about how much time he can spend on the internet. So I'd say, Sam, absolutely no time on your device. Okay, great. What do you want to do? Can I do origami? Sure. Okay. And you pull out all the origami. You said, can I watch YouTube videos? Cause this book is, I don't, this isn't a very good book on how to do origami. So can I watch a YouTube video? So is that device time or not device time? 
because oh. he's doing origami, right? Like, so yes, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. is that going on, not going online? <laughs> so it's very, it's a very challenging question in mm. a life where you do so much of that. Um, so, and the other thing is like Pokemon Go got him on the Bruce Trail with me. So we would go catch Pokemons and we'd spend two hours walking. Good, bad? you know? Yeah. So, question mark. Yeah. Question mark. So, uh, I do think that I'm very conscious of things such as, uh, Fortnite. Uh, I try to read a lot about the psychology of what a lot of those video games are trying to do. So Sam is only allowed to play it on certain days. And on the other days, he's not even allowed to watch videos on it. Well, why can't I watch a video? I'm not playing it because they're, it's a, it's about obsession, Sam. So what we're trying to do is, is, is get in the way of the obsession of Fortnite. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're trying to interrupt it so that you don't get into the situation. So if he wants to buy something on Fortnite because he earns his own money through his allowance doing things, we make him wait 24 hours uh, to make that decision. And very often he'll either decide not to buy it or he'll buy a lesser version of it. So it's mm. just about understanding the psychology of what technology does and how it works and trying to make sure that you're putting guardrails against it. Uh, but we're definitely not a no technology family, partially because I'm lazy, partially because I work a lot. And then partially because I think that if you don't understand and learn how the guardrails work, they're going to be on it anyway. And then they won't know how to behave. Yeah, that is a really strong lesson, especially for all of the parents, because there are many parents who just... Uh, opt out. They just shrug their shoulders and they say, well, I don't know what to do. So we'll either do no or yes. Yeah. And what you just described is a really great opening of the gray area yeah. and some great examples of a little bit of homework that parents should be taking to better understand, especially if they know the types of interests that their kids have. And hopefully that's something that most parents do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard. It's always a conversation. You always see yeah. that conversation online. Um, uh, but, you know, for me, getting out in nature, however they get out in nature is like the most important thing. And yeah. uh, the rest, the rest take care of itself to yeah, some extent. Exactly. And if technology can help facilitate that. Awesome. Swim drink fish, just in case anybody wants to check them out. Swim guide. <laughs> Great Lakes Guide. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm working on a presentation for them tomorrow. So <laughs> it's like in my brain. Top of, top of mind. Top, top of, of mind. mind. <laughs> All right. Question nine. Is there anything you'd like to promote? Um, you know what? I, I actually have two projects that I'm working on the side. Um, I don't know if either of them are ready to promote, but one of them is called Sarah. It's the simple automated reception app. So um, uh, we've been working on small business apps. Um, and so this is for small companies that are looking to actually have an automated receptionist mm -hmm. because they don't have enough money to have a receptionist. And what we've done with our company, uh, our sister company to Gravity Usable Technologies is we've built to the 10% of what people use. We've gotten rid of most of the features and functionality and done the very basics so mm -hmm. that we can undercut um, people uh, add all this crap nobody needs and then charge a lot more money right so that's that's one project um, one side hustle as I like to call it 
And um, my other side hustle, believe it or not, I have avoided my entire career doing anything that is woman related. So um, the startups that were getting funded in 2003, 2004 were, uh, you know, social shopping startups or baby companies or, you know, like you're a woman. Mm -hmm. So what's your woman product? Yeah. So ironically, in my 50s, I'm actually doing my first woman focused brand. I'm actually doing a, a lifestyle brand that is specifically targeted at menopause. Cool. The most under discussed issue period, full stop end of story. And I was mm -hmm. just saying to someone, someone was uh, one of my junior staff because we just we we're just working on the brand now and and uh, we're looking at the products and I, I can talk about them at another point in time. And one of my younger staff said, you know, can I ask a dumb question? Like, why does nobody talk about menopause? And I said, well, I don't think it's a dumb question. I said, first of all, vaginas are subject that nobody talks about. So mm -hmm. ovarian cancer wasn't talked about. Women's periods weren't talked about. Masturbation for women it's wasn't like talked only about. only just starting to now. Waist down, don't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Breast cancer is cute because it's boobs, yeah, right? Yeah, it's boobs, right? And you yeah. can have the booby ball and all the wonderful yeah, booby things. But, course. you know, like you know, waist down, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, I think the other thing is that you're just starting to see Generation X are the first women who are actually on social media and online who are going through menopause. Mm -hmm. So we are the first generation who are going through menopause. We're probably the first generation who are going to die on the internet. So like we're the first generation who most of us are in social media and online and actually grew up understanding it to some extent who are going to be experiencing all of these things. So I think that for that reason, all of a sudden you're seeing people wanting to talk about stuff, wanting to have a conversation about stuff that was exceptionally taboo in the past. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very different thing. And, and I think the other thing is we're going to live for another 30 years. We're going to spend money for another 30 years. Mm -hmm. So you have an entire marketplace that is actually focused on millennials. The entire market is focused on millennials. I think I had in a, a brief, I don't know, I don't know, two years ago, it said generation X. And I, I like was, I was going, Hey guys, I've got a brief for Gen X. Someone cares. <laughs> well, I understand we're not as big as boomers and we're not as big as millennials, but there's still a lot of buying power in the Gen X. Yeah. Um, so as, as women are starting to talk about these conversations in age, so I'm actually kind of really excited about it. And it's something I'm experiencing right now. I'm actually going through menopause. So to be able to talk about something so openly that like really honestly, just, just say the word menopause when you're at the office, you know, at some day, just go, guys, what do you think about menopause? And like, watch all the men just go, oh, my God, she's talking yeah. about menopause. You know, it's about it's about invisibility when you get older and uh, the taboo subjects of what happens to your body and aging and the process of aging. And it's particularly for women because men seem to get more distinguished as they get older and we become more irrelevant and ugly and our entire focus and job is to look younger. Right. Um, so, and I feel it and, you know, and our, we get weight on our bodies and all these horrible things that happen to us. So how do you actually, uh, evolve to actually age well. So the mm -hmm. company's called Peak Well, and we're hoping to launch it in the next three months. 
Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. That's really amazing. And I can only imagine that especially products that are geared towards that market, they're not getting the type of fanfare no, or attention not. that they that they should be. And it's not inspiring the same kind of innovation that has happened through a lot of the wellness and coping and, and brands that are more geared, say, towards millennials, yeah. like uh, weighted blankets and like all of these almost trends that you're seeing pop up. Well, we will be having night shirts that say, it's not me, it's menopause. Huh. So, which was literally, <laughs> literally, I, 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 I was going around for at least six months. Every time someone said something, I'm like, I'm like, I can't remember. Uh, sorry, it's not me, it's menopause. And uh, <laughs> my ex business partner Jordan got me a gravity T-shirt that says on it, "It's not me, it's menopause." So that's kind of our mantra. Oh, that's hilarious! So. That's great. So there you go. Very cool. Always a company to start. Always something new and different to do. That's amazing. That's admirable. That's really that true entrepreneurial spirit. That's yeah. really inspirational. Uh, I had a couple of last questions before sure. we wrap things up with the official question 10. Um, in being in marketing for uh, the past like two decades at, you know, or so two at least. Decades. I know, I know. So long. I oh know. I know. I but know. It's true. I know. Uh, what is one thing you would have done differently knowing what you know now? Uh, I don't know if I would have gone into marketing knowing what I know now. I think I really, I really, I think that the culture aspect of things, um, at, at some point I wanted to get my degree in, in cultural anthropology. So I think the thing that I think is the most interesting and the stuff that really excites me is when I look at, um, the impact of things on culture and how we can impact culture. So um, one of my favorite uh, stories was listening to a podcast um, about like social change and, and culture. And it's one of the things I actually do love about marketing and advertising is that we can actually have an impact on culture and have an impact on society in a way that and there's a responsibility, frankly, with that. Um, and uh, so as an example, there's a, a director that I didn't want to um, hire, even though a bunch of people liked stuff on his reel, because he had this old ad on his reel that was like one of the most sexist things I'd ever seen. Now, it was 15, 20 years ago, and some people were making the argument to me, but it was 15, 20 years ago. And I said, yes. And if I had Googled him and found it on some old YouTube channel, that would be fine. It's on his reel. Yeah. He's chosen to keep that on his reel. Fair point. So so I am not interested in working with someone who doesn't understand that that is no longer appropriate mm -hmm. and that as, as a woman CEO, I'm looking at that going, why is that person proud of that work now? You know, that's just a thing that happened in the past that he should put away. So I was listening to get back to what I was saying. I was listening to this podcast and she was talking about LGBTQ and she was saying that the thing that's the most interesting for her is that with all of the the policy changes and the marches and the the this and the that the thing that actually has made the greatest impact in the UK it was in London in LGBTQ was the fact that Doctor Who had a gay or bisexual pirate who little boys loved he was cool he was just burn on 
kind of a cool pirate. I only watched the show a couple times, but I kind of get it. He was like the he was like the Luke Perry of Doctor Who pirates. Aww. You know, he was just kind of <laughs> too like, soon. <laughs> really, uh, maybe too soon. Yeah. You know, I'm still processing Luke Perry stuff. I know, I know. Um, but um, uh, you know, like that kind of like cool bad boy, mm-hmm. but like all, all that sort of stuff. And she said at Halloween there were all these little boys just dressed up as him, and it wasn't a conversation about gay rights and is gay okay or not okay. It was just about little boys thinking the character was cool and normalizing, as it should be, LGBTQ. Yes. That's when something permeates culture. So uh, I love the fact that in marketing, we can do that. The unfortunate part is in Canada, our ability to do that is few and far between. Mm. And so I might have done something where I could have had a greater impact in that. And I think that that's one of the things that I look forward to maybe participating more in into the future, which is just... Uh, social change and actually moving things in the direction that I would like to see the world move yeah. in, rightly or wrongly, right. um, and and seeing that sort of change. Yeah, yeah for sure. And yeah. I guess that's probably a theme for me. Yeah, you know? it's true that visibility, that representation, it normalizes whatever we're hoping to normalize, which yeah. makes sense because it's just a reflection of life and a reflection of our society. You know, Steve Jobs once said that the Apple brand stood for people with passion can change the world. And I, at some point, had said that I really wanted like the purpose of gravity to be brands with passion can change the world. So I do think that there's so many opportunities for brands to actually play in that. And uh, so I shouldn't say I wish I'd didn't go into marketing. I just, I just, I, I wish that there were more opportunities in Canada to do things that would have significant impact that weren't just about, um, about capitalism mm-hmm. in of itself and, and selling more stuff, but actually having an impact. And it was interesting talking to Nyla, who I am going to connect you with because she would make a great podcast person. Please do. Um, but I think that, uh, she was talking about as we get older in more and more, it's about what is the impact that we're having. And I do think that that's true. I think that it's less about what we're accumulating. It's less about what we're accomplishing. And I think it becomes more about what is the impact we're having um, and uh, in, a, in a positive and enabling way. And uh, I think that, you know, that's something that we we all want to strive for, particularly when you get to a certain place in your career where you actually can maybe enable and have that kind of impact. Whereas, you know, before you were just struggling to, you know, get through the next day. Yeah, exactly. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, What have been some of your favorite or most influential brand partnerships that you've had up to now? Um, Definitely General Motors and Jeannie Simmons was an incredible partnership. Um, I, you know, as I mentioned to you, like Jeannie taught me so many things about being a woman in business. Mm -hmm. And she also told me how to handle my emotions, uh, in meetings and things like that. Um, I learned a lot from Jeannie. I once saw, uh, her being completely disrespected in a meeting and I saw her drink the slowest gulp of water I've ever seen, (laughs) put the water down and go, please excuse me. I'm just going to leave the room for a minute, leave the room for five minutes and then come back. And I've never seen an impact like that in my life. You know, it was just such a classy way to handle an incredibly inappropriate and uncomfortable situation. It, wow. it, it, it was a very impactful thing early in my career. Um, did the people who offended, did they get it? Oh, I think everybody in the room. Oh, got good. It. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, good, no, no. Good. Now, whether or not they were 
like truly impacted to change or whatever. Yeah, but question mark. No, but, yeah. for sure. It was it was very impactful. Um, I think definitely um, I worked with a gentleman called John Monroe, who was the CMO of Rogers Cable. Uh, I worked with him to rebrand um, uh, Rogers Video um, with a lot of other people and and uh, an ex-business partner of mine, Leslie Bacharetto, who's also a very close friend. Um, and then we worked with uh, John for three years at Rogers, uh, working to completely revamp the way that their marketing department actually worked right next to him. We were co-marketing directors, but we were consultants. Um, and uh, John was a streetwise, get crap done marketer mm. that... Uh, taught me so much about leadership and how to challenge the status quo and and uh, what it meant to have a true partnership and uh, gave me so many opportunities um, uh, that I otherwise wouldn't have had. Um, so I have to say there's there's a there's a number of, of different people. It's it's not a gender thing. It's just uh, you learn so many different things from so many uh, different people. So it's not so much the brands that you work on. It's kind of like university. You know, the shittiest courses that have the best teachers right. are the ones you want to take. Like huh. the best teachers yeah. can make the most boring subjects the most interesting. I think it's the same way with brand marketing. I've worked with some of the biggest, best brands with a shitty client where you just think, oh, my God, why am I doing this? Right. Like stab knives in yourselves. <laughs> and then you'll work on another brand where it's not that exciting theoretically, and yet it's been the most challenging, exciting, dynamic project where you're doing the most incredible things. It really is, it is a, it is a, it is a people and leadership question. It's not a brand one. That's, that's great. I mean, that's ultimately what helps you learn the most and develop yeah. as a person and in your business. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think that brings us to our very last question of the, the evening. Last question. The last, the final countdown. <laughs> There's me singing when I don't have a good singing voice. I apologize to anybody. No, listening. I know, but we actually haven't cheersed yet. So before mm. you finish, we're gonna cheers. We're drinking Tullamore Dew Irish whiskey tonight. It's very delicious. I have to say, mm -hmm. easy drinking, very nice. It's very Don Draper of me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was it was funny when I um, small anecdote uh, when I was entering the professional workforce because I also have a very odd education background. I studied kinesiology and then oh, ended up in tech. Very very odd. Yeah. Uh, but I was always thinking as a very creative individual because I love the arts. Uh, I was always thinking that I wanted Don Draper's job if that was still a thing. If it was still a thing, yeah. It, right? You know, I'm like, oh, give me a, an item or a whatever, and I can think of something really creative to make it resonate with a particular population. That's that's what I wanted to do when- That is actually still a job, just Right? So you know. I didn't, and I didn't realize what it was because I, yeah. I didn't I didn't know any better. I, I honestly, even though I work for LinkedIn currently, I was not on LinkedIn for far too long after I actually right. got a full-time job. So I had no idea and I didn't yeah. know how to find people who yeah. had these jobs. But I would just tell my closest friends who also didn't know uh, that I wanted that particular job. So agreed. Don Draper. Don Draper. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, question 10 to wrap things up is mm -hmm. what is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, oh God. Maybe that Maybe I skipped from question two to question 10. I was like, oh, I'll think about these later. Um, <laughs> what is the lesson that I learned the hard way? Uh, uh, wow, I've been so chatty up to now, and now it's impossible for me to think of anything. 
Um, yeah, maybe maybe getting comfort comfortable with discomfort has been something that's been very hard. Um, people aren't going to like you, um, so get over it. They're never going to like you. You think they're going to like you. You want them to like you. They're not going to like you, particularly if you're the boss. You're not going to be liked, um, at least by some people. Um, and uh, it's more important to be respected uh, than admired. Um, so I think that those are some of the the business hard lessons that I've learned. Um, on a on a personal level, I think um, uh, the 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 struggles that I continue, I, I mean, I'm so millennial. I've had anxiety before. It was cool to say you had anxiety. <laughs> um, I, I've had panic attacks uh, for a really long time. No. I, had, I had the first one when I was 12. Um, and uh, my dad thought as a punishment, it would be a really good idea not to talk to, a. I guess I was 11, an 11 year old for two weeks when my mom was away. And, mm. uh, and then I ended up in a total, like my stomach went insane and he was about to take me to the hospital and I walked out the door and then the pain went away and he thought I had lied just to get him to talk to me because uh, you know I did a goof you know like you're just you just want your parent to talk to you mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, I I have for whatever reason decided to do probably one of the most stressful things known to humankind which is entrepreneurship mm. um and uh, so it obviously is something that feeds me and drives me it's something that bizarrely is very comfortable to me and my discomfort and all of that um so i think that one of the hard lessons to learn is 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 how to manage it so that I don't end up in a mental health situation so that I manage my anxiety. I manage my stress. I, I, I manage my emotional world in a way that doesn't negative in, negatively impact other people. You know, I was reading to see, uh, I had written, I haven't written poetry in a long time, but I wrote poetry for a long time. And I had a series of poems called the skeleton woman poems. Um, and, uh, they were partially based on my sister was in an abusive relationship for seven, eight years. And it's a long story for another podcast, but I helped her escape Greece and it involved the Canadian consulate and it involved, you know, um, her ending up in a hospital in the UK and eventually getting back to Canada. And I think that, uh, I had written a, a poem for Sia about, uh, about being in fast forward. So about, Everything was moving. When you are in an anxiety attack and a panic attack, things start to move incredibly fast around you. Your mm -hmm. heart rate is moving really fast. The way you speak moves very fast. You you start to project out in a very sort of panicked way. And, and I had written this poem called Fast Forward and talking about the need to slow down. I think one of the things that I've learned the very hard way, if I'm going to choose to be in an industry and an environment and a business that is so stressful that there are times where I need to take myself out of the situation and I need to have people around me who are very supportive who can help me see when I go into fast forward mm. so that I can actually take a step back and slow down. And it helps me be, the weird thing is, that that ability to be in fast forward is so fundamental to my success. Hmm. And yet, if I'm in that state for too long, it becomes a complete detriment to my business and to the people around me. So it's oh, the hardest lesson for me is, being, is, is finding um, the ability 
maybe that's the balance I try to, that's the only time I try to find balance is uh, when I'm in that zone for too long, that it starts to negatively impact uh, the world around me and needing to slow down. So mm. I don't know. There you go. A yeah. hard lesson to learn. No, I mean, I was literally just picturing like you on a tightrope as you were describing that. It's like, this is this, this is this engine, this magic that allows me to do the amazing things that I do. But if that goes out of control or if it continues on for too long, then that's what hurts me. Yeah. That's, that's, it's dangerous. Yeah, I think for I think for anybody who does anything, and maybe that's why I admire people who are in the creative arts so much, is I believe anyway that they're in the position of fast forward a lot more than I am because I think that creativity comes often out of that place and out mm. that space. You're making yourself very vulnerable. You're looking at things in a completely different way. You're challenging yourself. You're challenging your own perceptions. You're looking very inward. Um, you're gathering up all of these pieces of information, a lot of which maybe are uncomfortable and, and that's why you're gathering them. And I think that that takes you in a place where you know, again, that fast forward place where it has a life of its own and it has a momentum of its own. And that's an incredible thing. But that momentum can sometimes start spinning around and go so fast that you can lose control of that. So it's just knowing when that starts to happen and whether it's not a good thing and whether you get too tired or whether you need a weekend off or mm -hmm. whether you need your brain to have that rest. And I'm sure for you that that's the Netflix thing. I love celebrity culture and I love really dumb TV shows yep. and stuff. And I always say that that's my brain checking out yep. and actually not having to think and not having to be in that place. Yep. And uh, so it, it's just, it's, it, it's finding how you manage um, the amazing things that are an outcome from it, but the things that you need to stop it so that it doesn't take over. It's so true. I call it brain popcorn, but for me, it's, you know, working from home. I'm still, I'm still productive. I'm still working. I'm still online, but just removing myself from sometimes that, that overstimulus of being in yeah. an open concept workplace and constantly always having to make decisions and having conversations with a hundred people. You know, for me, that's my way of mediating that as well as having wonderful people in my life, like my partner saying, okay, now it's time to close the laptop or this this is what we're going to be doing tonight. Or, hey, don't worry about dinner. I, I've got it yeah. because I, I couldn't care less because my brain's a pile of mush by honestly, the end of the day. Honestly, because uh, we live so close to the Bruce Trail, the Bruce Trail is is so fundamental to mm -hmm. my mental health and to things that are connecting me and that are important and help me to do that slow down and all the rest of it. And I see that in my daughter, like exercise for her and, and being very physical because so much of what we do is not physical, right? right? We're sitting down. It's intellectual. We're on the computers. Yep. We're on the devices. So it's not about disconnecting from the device because, by the way, I take photos when I'm on the Bruce Trail or yeah. sometimes I listen to music or I'm on a podcast. So sure. all the rest of it. But it really is about um, just like working with your hands. I've gotten very obsessed with working with my hands lately. In particular, got very obsessed with doing paper mache. So wow. somebody, somebody at the New Yorker at some point, I've done these Trump coasters and paper mache. <laughs> um, and uh, so somebody at the New Yorker at some point is going to get a, a paper mache because, you know, like if you subscribe to the New Yorker, like they just they come every week and I don't have time to read all the articles. <laughs> 
So I go through my New Yorkers and I literally rip out the stuff that I'm going to read. And then I actually have saved all this other stuff that I'm going to be creating like some paper mache art. So that's hilarious. Just doing things like that to just like, you know, um, to express a different part of myself or to use different muscles is always uh, an amazing thing. That's so cool. Well, I look forward to seeing some examples of this cool paper paper mache. Yes, yes, I would love to. (laughs) Lee, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. It's been so wonderful to get to know you more. Okay, thank you. And thank you for my whiskey. I I totally recommend anybody to come here and have some amazing. I've never seen such a whiskey bar in my life. Absolutely. When you're in my house, you are privy to the whiskey collection. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone. 